the ordinary language people, that's what they care about. And they, they think that it's a kind of, that sort of philosophical puzzles, generally speaking, arise from a kind of abuse of ordinary language. So Austin, John Austin, J.L. Austin, uh, goes on at great length, for example, about the, you know, the actual conditions under which it's okay to call an act voluntary. And he thinks if we, if only we pay super close attention to when it is that you can call an act voluntary and when you can't call it voluntary and when you would call it involuntary and stuff like that, then the whole puzzle about free will will just sort of go away. Hello, my geeselings. It is Mother Goose, Robinson Earhart, here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 57. And this episode is with my friend, Professor Richard Kimberly Heck of Brown University. And I have already recorded three episodes with Ricky, and you'll know this if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, but they're episodes 5, 17, and 41, and we cover the philosophy of sex, pornography, and gender in those three episodes, and I don't know how long they are, seven, eight hours altogether. If you're anything like me, you didn't know that these three were even topics, but clearly they are. And if you listen to those episodes, which are some of my favorites, you'll get a very good sense of what's going on in that domain. But in this episode, we turn to the area of work that Ricky is best known for, uh, or at least some of that material, which is Frege and the philosophy of language. Though we don't actually talk too much about Frege. I mean, the podcast is about three hours long. So I guess I should have said that the topic is the theory of reference, uh, reference being uh, referring to something, how maybe a word or a name uh, picks out an object. So it's the philosophy of language. Anyway, this is some real nerd stuff, even within philosophy. And Ricky talks about that at the beginning of this episode. But some of the figures we cover are Frege, Russell, Carnap, Strawson, Kripke, Lewis, uh, Burge, and within those figures or surrounding those figures, we also talk about uh, the descriptive theory of names, uh, Übersinn und Bedeutung, uh, ordinary language philosophy, natural kinds, possible worlds, internalism and externalism, uh, vagueness, what representations are, uh, experimental philosophy of language, uh, some thought experiments like Twin Earth or Ty Burge has uh, another thought experiment that is somewhat like it. But anyways, like I was saying, very nerdy episode. I loved it, and hopefully you love it too. I should also add, because I don't do these call to actions enough, calls to action enough, uh, I also have another show, Robinson Eats, on Twitch every day. I have a pint of ice cream and talk about whatever. And then you can also follow me on Twitter, and that's probably about it. So... Without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Ricky. So as as you've said elsewhere, not just philosophy of language, but in particular, uh, sense and reference or just reference is mm-hmm. some real philosophy nerd stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. and for that reason, I thought it might be a good idea to start by setting the stakes. Like beyond just 
the philosopher's fascination with any sort of fun little puzzle or tedium. Mm-hmm. Why have names, and maybe more broadly, why has philosophy of language been of so much interest to philosophers, particularly over maybe the last 130, 140 years? Yeah, I think... Um... So I think the answer to this question is 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 not that um, surprising in a way. Um, so I I've said several times that I'm you know in no way really a, a, a scholar of philosophy, uh, you know, history of philosophy. But um, well, before before you say that though, I mean, you are one of the leading historians of Frege or philosophers yeah, of Frege. And he's a so, very important philosophical yeah, figure. So. Older philosophy. Um, yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. Uh, I think, I think maybe you asked me this before, but I've never actually read the critique of pure reason. So, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. uh, though, I mean, you know, it's not that I don't, I just don't have time to do that. So anyway, um, so I think the, the, the best way to think of this, I think is just that, uh, one of the central, I mean, so the, so the nature of mind and the nature of thinking uh, and thought has been a central preoccupation of philosophers forever, I think. Um, and that really, so, so one of the uh, main distinctions that people will make when they start talking about the nature of the mind is between representational states and, and states that aren't representational, or at least aren't obviously representational. So beliefs are the standard example um so if i believe that you know joe biden is the president then that's a that that belief is somehow about the world right it's about something um that belief happens to be true uh uh at the moment anyway um other mental states uh like uh I mean, people will sometimes mention like pain uh, as an example or a kind of, uh, you know, having an itch or something like that. Those don't at least obviously uh, represent anything. They aren't really about anything. Now, it's philosophy, so some people might say that they are. Um, Ned Block likes to give the example. I mean, we've been talking about sex, so orgasm. Um, you know, that's a mental, that's a mental phenomenon. It's a feeling that you have, but it doesn't seem to be about anything. I mean, it's not like your orgasm could be true or it could be yeah. false. I mean, that doesn't in seem many to ways, make any kind of sense. It's a paradigmatic case of something that's about nothing. I think in, in French, maybe it's called le petit mort, uh, but yeah. you're sort of yeah. dying. It's the absence of everything. It's just overwhelming. Yeah. So that's, that's so, what I, I yeah. see by block. So, so then there's this question about, um, so, it, you know, I have this belief uh, that Joe Biden is the president and it's about him uh, and it's about being the president. And so one wants to know, um, how does that, how, how does that happen? I mean, what is the connection between this, you know, mental state uh, in my head, presumably some kind of brain state um, and, and Joe Biden, you know, who, who I've never met uh, is, is far away uh, and so forth, right? How does that happen? Um, that I think is the is the kind of motivating question. I mean, once you start digging into this, uh, you know, all kinds of other questions are going to pop up along the way. But the the central question that's animating uh, philosophy of language, at least as I 
tend to think of it, is this question about representation. Um, and really, I mean, I think there's this really wonderful paper by Tyler Burge. Um, I think it's called something like Philosophy of Language, 18 or sorry, not 1880 to 1975 or something, in which he gives this kind of lengthy survey of philosophy of language. One of the things that he points out in that paper is that that issue, which was really talked about in terms of language for a very long time, in the through the 70s and the 80s, really turned into an issue in philosophy of mind. And so these, at least for, for most philosophers, not for all philosophers, um, there is this sort of other very large issue about whether you think that language or mentality is, is somehow primary. Is it, you know, do, does language have meaning because we have beliefs that are representational or is it the other way around? Or are they, as Davidson thought, somehow kind of coeval? Um, but, uh, so, I mean, so that's a very large issue. Um, but, and, and in some ways, I think because um, the, the, the issue about the nature of representation kind of shifted into philosophy of mind, philosophy of language itself has transformed somewhat over the last, say, 40 years, um, because in a way that kind of core issue got absorbed into something else. Um, but it's, but I think philosophers of language are still often interested in that. Mm -hmm. So around like 140, 120, 100 years ago, when philosophers were uh, very concerned with the denotation relation or uh, mm -hmm. reference, it was very much about how our words connect to the world so that's right the fit yeah. between them uh, before we get into that which i think is more going to be the focus of this conversation what what has the shift been in the last 40 years since this issue of representation was absorbed into philosophy of mind i'm actually going to yeah. talk with a ucla professor gabe greenberg towards the end mm -hmm. of january about mm -hmm. uh, expressly about mental representation mm -hmm. so diagrams in particular so yeah so um one of the one of the kind of noticeable shifts uh that has occurred is that um linguistic theory uh has become a a, 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 a philosophy has a lot more to do with linguistics uh now than it did when I was in graduate school even um you know not quite 40 years ago and certainly if you look at the 70s um you know the, the kind of davidson and dummett and and even Donellan and lots of people like that. Linguistic theory wasn't really that central to philosophy of language. You could do philosophy of language and it perfectly well without ever kind of thinking about the you know the science science of language. And nowadays, I my own view is that that would be somewhat irresponsible um, to to proceed that way. That we know quite a lot about the structure of language of human language and. Um, I don't think linguistic theory is going to like solve the big philosophical problems, but I do think you have to pay attention to it. Um, and so there are a lot of kind of questions, you know, very detailed questions about, say, mass terms like gold or water as opposed to so-called count terms like person. Um, you know, how do they work? What are they doing? Um, generic constructions have been a focus of a lot of attention recently. Um, so you get 
these kind of philosophy very focused on certain kinds of linguistic constructions. Uh, and that's often mm -hmm. in, very much informed again by, by linguistic theory. And the people who do that are often straddling the boundary between philosophy and linguistics. Yeah, you point to something interesting. I mean, the best philosophers of physics, maybe like David Albert is one of them, has his PhD in physics. Some of the best uh, philosophers in mathematics, like David Joel Hankins or or Wooden, are mathematicians. It's yeah. philosophy is at its best when it's very closely in dialogue with uh, the subject that's under yeah, evaluation. I, I and I very, I see very why, much agree with that. Why yeah. language is no distinction or no exception now we talked uh three episodes ago now about how you went from being or expecting maybe to be a mathematician to being mm -hmm. a philosopher but how in particular granted today's subject did you get into Frege? so Frege, I, I mean is a critical figure in the philosophy of math was that the original no connection? yeah no oddly enough i mean it's it's sort of strange uh because when i when i started becoming like really serious about philosophy it was it, it was it was kind of like i was running away from math so i wasn't particularly interested in philosophy mathematics at the beginning um i discovered frega in an in a in a graduate seminar that i took as a junior in college um it was taught by a guy named carl posey um, who is now at, uh, I think he's at Hebrew University. I could be wrong about that. Um, but he was one of my main mentors as an undergraduate. Um, and he so he taught this course on, uh, I think it was just called Analytic Philosophy. And it started with Frege and it went through Russell and Wittgenstein. And we read some of the positivists. And I think we read Quine and then we read Dummett. And I became just kind of fascinated with Frege. Um, and I, uh, in particular, got really interested in Dummett's work on Frege. And, and you so studied with I, Dummett, right? Yeah. I mean, this yeah. was like a, a particular plan that I hatched was to go to Oxford and study with him. Um, and that's why I applied for a Marshall Scholarship uh, was because I wanted to go to Oxford, um, which, you know, fortunately I was, I was able to do. Um, and of course, the experience of working with Michael Dummett on Frege kind of hooked me uh, big time. Um, right. And when I got to MIT, uh, I found, you know, much to my pleasure that the study of early analytic philosophy was a major focus of the department. Uh, George Bulos, uh, of course, was working on Frege at that time. Richard Cartwright uh, wrote on Russell and uh, early analytic philosophy uh, more generally. The pro seminar on MIT kind of started with Frege and kind of worked its way up. So it really was just a great fit for me. Um, and so, um, you know, my interest on Frege was able to flourish uh, there and also to kind of refocus toward his philosophy of mathematics, which I had not studied as much. I did study that with Dummett. Um, yeah, so that's anecdotally, that's what I was going to ask. He, he's well known, I think, for just how much he loved the Grundlagen. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if, if that was partially what influenced. So we, your... one of the things we did, um, I just actually just got an email about this a couple of days ago. Um, this year is the 40th anniversary of the publication of Crispin Wright's book, Frege's Conception of Numbers as Objects. Um, and I turned up in Oxford in 1985. So two years after that book was published and Dummett was very interested in it. Um, at that time, Crispin had been a, 
Uh, I don't know if he was ever, I think, formally a student at Domitz. I guess he was, actually, um, when Christman did his BFIL. I'm not sure about that. But um, but anyway, Michael was very interested in the book. And so we spent an entire semester studying it um, together. And I wrote much of my dissertation at MIT grew out of my study of that book. Um, and that you know then led into other things uh, so it was it was as much as anything i think uh wright's book that got me started on uh working on frege's philosophy mathematics and just a little bit more stage setting since frege is such a towering figure and i haven't or he hasn't really been discussed that much on this podcast mm -hmm. thus far with the exception of some conversation i had with heim gaifman on vagueness mm -hmm. but uh, who was that love Frege, uh, and yeah. So, was there anything particularly fascinating about him, uh, character? I'm not sure there was really. I mean, I think he was. Uh, I, I mean, he he's unfortunately known for having been pretty virulently anti-Semitic. Um, that wasn't unusual for Germans of that era. Um, there are some indications that like he the had mid eight, some... mid to late 1800s. Yeah, and into the twenties, nineteen twenties. I mean, there his he he wrote a he has a there's a diary of his that was published long after he died uh, that contains some pretty nasty stuff. Um, and uh, he seems to have been a, a sympathizer with the Nazi Party early in their, you know, but long before Frege died in nineteen twenty eight, maybe I think some something like that. But before Hitler came to power, so we. I have no idea what Frege's response would have been to that, but um, so his politics were probably not uh, something we want to emulate. But he himself was a mathematician. Um, he was trained as a mathematician. Um, he wrote his dissertation on co complex analysis or early algebraic geometry, as one might you might think of it. Um, he uh, wrote his Habilitationsschrift, which is sort of this thing you have to write in Germany to become a on your way to becoming a professor. Um, that was also in, you know, all his sort of formal stuff was in in mathematics, not in, and not in a part of math that had anything to do with logic. And so, you know, for reasons that it's, are kind of not terribly clear, uh, he became really interested in the question, uh, of, of questions about the foundations of geometry. Um, I think this is connected to his mathematical work. Jamie Tappenden, who's at Michigan, has done some great stuff on on this. Um, but Frege became interested in questions about, really about the relationship between arithmetic, which he understood in a very broad sense to include not just one, two, three, but real numbers, complex numbers, and so forth, that part of mathematics, and geometry, uh, on the other hand. And much of his mathematical work was was kind of in algebraic geometry. So it was applying kind of analytic techniques to geometry and, and that sort of thing. And his, um, so he, he was particularly interested in the question whether um, complex, sort of complex numbers uh, have, should be understood in a sort of geometrical way. So if you think about the way complex numbers are often represented, you kind of think of the complex plane with the real numbers laid out this way and the imaginary labels numbers laid out that way. And complex numbers are something like vectors in this, in this plane. And that's a very geometrical way of thinking about what complex numbers are. And you can define complex addition and multiplication in kind of geometrical terms. And that was as common a way of thinking about complex numbers when Frege was in graduate school as it is today. And he, he was, 
kind of bothered, I guess, bothered by this. He he thought that complex analysis should not have to rest on a kind of geometrical foundation. Um, he was in, he wanted to try to provide a, a way of understanding what complex numbers are and real numbers too, therefore, that didn't rely in any way upon geometrical notions. And that was what he sort of set out to do. Uh, to do that, he then sort of realized that if you were gonna make absolutely sure that you, you know, some theorem that you had proved involving complex numbers didn't involve any geometrical assumptions, you had to have a way of keeping really careful track of exactly what assumptions had figured into the proof. And it was to do that that he invented what we now know as logic, um, you know, mathematical logic as we know it today in the Begerschrift. And that was it, was it was a tool for him. I mean, he wanted, again, to sort of know, he wanted to know as people talking about set theory, you know, often want to know today, exactly what assumptions are needed to prove this theorem. That was the kind of question that he was interested in. But if, you, if you're gonna figure that out, then again, you have to have some way of tracking exactly what assumptions are needed. And so he invented logic uh, to do that, and then went on to try to use that to construct, you know, natural numbers, complex, real numbers, complex numbers, and so forth on a, as he saw it, purely logical foundation. Um, in particular, one that didn't involve any geometrical assumptions. So, um, so, so I mean, that all sounds very mathy. And what, what happens is that he becomes interested in kind of foundational questions about the logic that he has invented. Um, he's interested in questions like, um, you know, what is, what, what really is it to, to, what do we really mean when we say that this thing logically follows from that other thing? And how can you give an account of, of what that is? How do logical formulas represent things? He was interested in that question. And it's in the context of that, that the sense reference stuff kind of comes up is in his attempt to understand the foundations of logic. Okay. Well then before we get into sense and reference, just very quickly, uh, correct me or amplify anything that I'm about to say, but I think of Frege as one, uh, okay, this is just to underscore just how important he is today. Mm -hmm. I mean, one, I think of him as the father or one of the parents, at least, of analytic philosophy, which is the dominant philosophical tradition now. He's also the most important logician since Aristotle. Uh, and I mean, Gödel obviously is very important afterward yeah. as well, but, but but perhaps the second the second most mm -hmm. important logician of all time, and then the creator, or obviously there there were other contributions and other people working like George Boole or Peirce, but he was one of the the fathers of first order logic, which is now I mean fundamental to all sorts of computers, all sorts of things, the mm -hmm. mathematics. And though, of course, it evolved since then, his notation was extremely complicated and entirely abandoned, but he still got that going for him. Yeah, and then the founder right. of, con uh, of contemporary, or at least the ancestor of contemporary philosophy of language, a lot of contemporary mm -hmm. philosophy of math, a lot of this stuff all goes back to Frege. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So right. I'm I'm pretty much on yeah. the mark. Yeah, uh, and I I mean I think he um, uh, you know, I with any kind of thing that gets invented, there is it's it's often the case that there are other people. You know, if mm -hmm. he hadn't done it, probably somebody else would have. 
um, it's it's that's usually the case. Um, but you know, as far as the actual history of the thing goes, um, you know, it what we now know is quantification, uh, which is absolutely fundamental to logic, is Frege's invention. Um, he is he created that. Um, he is responsible for notions like scope uh, and and things like that. And it should be said that you know the, the influence of this on linguistic theory uh, is is enormous. Um, yeah. It's you know the kinds of structures we think of languages having today are quite different from the ones that Frege finds you know in first order logic. But there's a path right that you can follow uh, that goes through Frege um, and you know, into people like church and, and so forth. Carnap. Okay. And, you know, and blah, then blah, blah. My, my last stage setting question. I'm curious, did you have, I mean, presumably you've, you've done a lot of your research on Frege in the original German. No. <laughs> okay. Actually, well, that was going to be my, no. my question. Okay. Oh, interesting. My, my knowledge of German is pretty pathetic. Um, okay. I mean, I, I can read it a bit. Um, not actually as well now as I did when I when I was working on 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 Frege's philosophy of mathematics. I had to learn to read German uh, to some extent because the book in which his his magnum opus, the Basic Laws of Arithmetic, Grundgesetze der Arithmetik, was not translated at that time. Um, and so, if I was going to read it, I had to learn to plow through the German. Um, now it is translated. Uh, but it wasn't at that time. Uh, but well, well, fortunately for me, the stuff I needed to read was, it's, it's all stuff like, now we are going to prove this. To prove this, we need to prove that, right? So you don't need a lot of vocabulary okay. to read Well, it. maybe that hints at the answer to the methodological issue that this raises for me. But for example, ancient scholars are... Mm -hmm. You have to know Greek. You have to do the reading in Greek. Uh, or Peter Adamson, you have to know the medieval Arabic to be mm -hmm. a scholar like him. Why is it that for your work on Frege, and like I said, you might have pointed to a bit of it, you don't need German in that same way? So I think that actually, if I were going to start working on Frege today, I, I would I would feel differently. Uh, than I do. Um, I do think you, you sometimes hear people say, we, I have this conversation in my department sometimes, um, you can be a kind of scholar of Greek philosophy, say, um, who is also kind of interested in contemporary issues, you know, contemporary applications of that stuff. And if that's your orientation, then yeah, you really have to know Greek and probably Latin too, and Lord knows what else, maybe some Arabic. Um, but you can also be a sort of, say, moral philosopher. You know, your main interest is in moral philosophy. And you happen to find Aristotle's ethics, say, inspiring, right? Um, and and, and it, you may even, you know, be kind of, sec in a way, secondarily interested in Aristotle, in, in Aristotle's scholarship. Um, you can be that kind of philosopher and not know Greek. Um, I'm that kind of, that's, that's me, right? I'm, my main interests really are in um, the contemporary stuff. Um, I don't, that, it's in that sense that I kind of don't really consider myself a scholar of, of Frege in the way that, that's, that especially the German, German scholars um, 
God, Gabriel Gottfried, for example, comes to mind, or Christian Thiel, and people like that, who, I mean, these guys are, you know, they're plowing into, like, the library records to find out what books Frege checked out, you know, when he was working on different things. That's a kind of scholarship that it's just not what I do. Um, if you're going to do that kind of stuff, then, yeah, you have to be reading Frege in the original German, and you, you know, need to, you know, do a lot of other digging of the kind that I don't do. I'm, I don't find myself particularly interested in, in sort of um, the historical questions in a way in their own right. I mean, I'm, I'm more interested in them for the light they throw on contemporary issues, though, you know, sometimes I can get obsessed with historical, historical things. So I, I mentioned the Begriff Schrift, and I think that is typically translated as concept writing. And yeah, then, conceptual notation. Yeah. Conceptual it's a notation. it's a neologism that Frege created. Mm -hmm. And then the paper that everybody knows today is Zinnenbedeutung, which yep. I, Sense and Reference. Uber Zinnenbedeutung, yeah. On Sense and Reference. Uh, Uber, okay, sorry. Yeah. And but you, you just mentioned that the whole discussion of reference came not, or not, sorry, that's the wrong proposition. It came out of his work in logic. So is that yeah, where right. you think uh, it would be a good place to start talking about just what reference is before going into maybe that big no, paper? No, I, I think it's hard to, I, I think it's not, that's something we better in a way come back to. Um, is okay, sort of sure. why what the connection is. I mean, I think in fact this is a this is a, an issue that I really have historically found historically interesting. Is sort of why does Frege write that paper, right? I mean, he, his interests that is not what he's interested in really. You know, he's interested. I mean, there's all this. I mean, there's stuff about presupposition in that paper and like all this stuff, and like why does he get interested in that? If you look at everything that comes up to that, there's just no precedent for it in his in his right it just kind of comes out of nowhere and so I, I have been interested in the question kind of like why where does that come from why is he why does he become interested in that and but i don't think he is i don't think it's a good place to start it's it's something you kind of have to back into sure then then maybe uh just because i like using the foreign words maybe mm -hmm. we should start with uberzin and bedeutung and maybe with well, I don't know how you like to teach the paper. Maybe that would be interesting to just hear how you teach the paper. But also, I mean, if you also think it's just better to start off with maybe the morning star and evening star. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very, very puzzling paper in some ways. I mean, I, I mostly, last time I taught it, I spent two days on it. Um, but I think next time I'll probably just have them read like the first two pages, basically. Um, and then, you know, let leave, leave the rest of it. I mean, Frege, so, so one way to think of it is is this, that, um, so I was talking before, I mean, the paper is about, ultimately it's about language, but Frege is making certain assumptions about the nature of thought uh, that is meant cognition, belief, um, <clears throat> in the argument that he gives. And I think it's best to kind of start with what those are. <clears throat> so... I mentioned before that you know beliefs are about about things. That's one of their one of my students in the sense he, that they're they're representational. Yeah, uh, to use that's your right. Word. Okay. I remember one of my students discovered this at a certain point. And he thought this was the most amazing thing, and, <laughs> um, and it, it is. You know, it is, it's striking, right? Um, so 
So, so one question you that we can ask uh, here I, is, wait, I'm actually going to cut you off. Is yeah, another way of saying that something is representational saying that it has maybe like propositional content? Yeah, or truth to, conditions. Or um, truth conditions. Okay, because yeah. so, pain or an orgasm it doesn't have. It's not a a factual sort of thing. There are no uh, truth conditions. Uh, one would, I would suppose, again, this yeah, philosophy. Okay. So, um, okay. some philosophers yeah. would disagree. Um, okay, great. Yeah, but great. Uh, so, so at least for belief, right? One of the things that's distinctive about beliefs is that they can be right or wrong, um, true right. or false. Um, and so, what you know, what they're about is, as it were, whatever situation they they kind of. Okay. There's a certain way the world needs to be for it to be true, and that's how it represents so it has the world a, as being. I'm just trying to think of some other ways of making this representational idea clearer to the audience that might not have this background. And it's really, it really comes down to aboutness maybe. That's right. Yep. Okay. Great. Yeah. It, it's so, I mean, I think, but aboutness is often used just to mean kind of like, so take my belief that Joe Biden is president. You might say that's about Joe Biden. Um, philosophers would want to say that it's, yes, it is about Joe Biden. It's about Joe Biden that he is the president, right? So, right, so what it represents complex is Joe Biden being thing. the president. Yeah. So there's what we want to call, uh, there's a whole other issue here, but we would say, you know, there's a certain situation, Joe Biden's being the president or state of affairs or something. And that's what it represents. Um, mm -hmm. since, ever since Plato, there's been this problem about how beliefs can be false, right? I mean, if take my belief, you know, if somebody believes that, you know, Donald Trump is president, uh, what does that represent? Well, it represents the situation of Donald Trump's being president, but there is no such situation as that, right? Um, so there's an issue uh, about the nature of falsity that's kind of bound up with this too. Um, so, uh, so, so once we've got this on board, right, that that their the beliefs represent things in this way, then you can ask questions like. Um, yeah, you know, what is it about? So take take my belief that Joe Biden is the president. What 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 is it that makes that belief the very belief that it is? What would it? What 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 makes that you know that belief as opposed to some other belief? And you might think that the answer is just what it's about, right? So what you know, my belief that Joe Biden is president is different from my belief that Snow is white because one of them is the belief is about Joe Biden's being president, and the other one's about. Snow is being white. So you might think, well, look, that's that's what makes a belief the very belief that it is. It's what it's about. And from that perspective, um, this is where Frege's famous identity puzzles kind of come in, because Frege points out that in the so he has this example involving Hesperus and Phosphorus. So Hesperus is but I'll, I'll give a different example. Um, so Bob Dylan uh, is the stage name of a guy who was born Robert Zimmerman. Um, he took the name Bob Dylan uh, early in his career, Dylan after Dylan Thomas, because he considered himself a poet, which indeed he is, having won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Bob, short for Robert. Um, somebody could, you, know, you can imagine that there's somebody who grew up with him, who knew Robert Zimmerman as a child, uh, has heard of this guy, Bob Dylan, maybe has some of his albums and stuff, but doesn't realize that Robert Zimmerman, this person he knew as a child, is Bob Dylan, right? The the great songwriter, um, and that person, right, could could believe that Bob Dylan is a great songwriter, but not believe that Robert Zimmerman is a great songwriter, right? That seems a perfectly possible situation for this person to be in, right? And uh, there, 
they're real life examples I could you know could give of, of things that have happened to me in which I've been in situations like that. And so, but both beliefs, right? I and mean, you can even imagine the person has two beliefs, right? They have the belief that Robert Zimmerman's a great songwriter and the belief that Bob Dylan's a songwriter, great songwriter, but not because they think Bob Dylan's Robert Zimmerman. They heard Robert Zimmerman playing songs as a child or whatever, right? So, but it looks like those beliefs are about the same thing, right? They're both about the same person. There's only one person there who alternately gets called Bob Dylan and Robert Zimmerman. And they're about, you know, they're, they're both about the same person and about him being a great songwriter. So if, if those are different beliefs, then it can't be that what makes a belief the very belief it is, is just what it's about because they're about the same thing and yet they're different beliefs. And so the initial problem in a way that, that Frege sees is to sort of say something about, well, okay, if it's not just what the belief is about that makes it the belief that it is, what is it? What is the other piece? What is the kind of missing piece that, um, let me hold on a sec. No, that doesn't work. Um, you know, what, what other than the thing the belief is about is relevant to, you know, which belief it is. Um, and th that thing, uh, this extra piece is what Frege calls sense. As it is, as I, as I describe it to my students and in my writing, a programmatic notion, meaning that he doesn't really tell us what it is. He just tells us why we need it and says, you know, we need this thing because there has to be something more to it's being the very belief that it is besides what it's about. And I'm going to call that thing sense. And now, you know, now the product is, well, let's figure out what that is. Right. Um, but he doesn't tell us very much about what it is. He just gives us a kind of existence proof uh, for it. And sense, of course, is uh, the Zin. That's in, right. In Which paper. has given rise now, to many puns over the years. Uh, <laughs> Frege's original Zin, and you know, oh, that's a good one. Uh, so on and so forth. Yeah, <laughs> sinning against Frege is a paper by Burge. I mean, it's a lot of a lot of okay. good puns. That's um, painful, but I, I appreciate yeah. it nonetheless. Now, mm. I appreciate the Bob Dylan example, but if you wouldn't mind. Could you go through the Hesperus and Phosphorus example? Because, yep. I mean, it is such a classic. It's constantly referenced today. Mm -hmm. And I think it also, I mean, for me at least, it gives me a chuckle every time I like see anything related to the more. So there's there's mm -hmm. a really phenomenal ice cream place in New York City called Morgan Stearns. And uh -huh. whenever, whenever I see it, or when I lived in New York, uh, I would get a chuckle. And mm -hmm. They had great ice cream too, so it was just right. plus plus. Yeah, so so Frege mentions this example um, a couple of different places. Uh, so historically, um, well, I mean, so you can see this today, right? So if you go out uh, early in the evening or late in the morning, or sorry, yeah, early in the evening or very early in the morning, I guess, um, the the bright you you can see Venus. Um, it is the brightest body uh, in the sky other than the sun and the moon. Um, it's bright enough that you can sometimes even see it when the sun is up. Um, ancient astronomers uh, noticed this, this thing up in the sky uh, and they called the, the thing they could see in the evening uh, Hesperus and they called the thing they could see in the, e the, the morning Phosphorus not realizing that in fact this was the very same thing that they were seeing both times that was apparently discovered by pythagoras uh who is famous for other things but they so so they had you know 
believe, say, that, that Hesperus could be seen in the evening. They didn't believe that phosphorus could be seen in the evening. They thought that phosphorus could only be seen in the morning or something. Uh, so that so it's a it's the same kind of situation, right? Where their belief is about the very same thing, unbeknownst to them. Uh, they seem to have two, as it were, two sets of beliefs about the same object. There are different sets of beliefs, um, and so it can't just be what the belief is about that that gives it its identity. Okay, great. And so, where does he go from there in at, in fleshing out this idea of what the thing, the missing thing is, the zin? Yeah. So he, you know, he says very, astonishingly little about this, um, and I think part of the reason for this is that he. So I, I, as I mentioned before, the, the paper is really about language, um, and I haven't. I've, I've just been talking about belief so far, and what Frege sort of what he ends up doing is is, is he becomes interested in the question, or he he in effect argues that the sentence Hesperus is a planet. And the sentence phosphorus is a planet have to mean different things because if they meant the very same thing, then it looks like they would, you know, perform the same linguistic function or something like that. But they don't, right? Is his thought that one of them, if I say phosphorus is a planet, then that kind of expresses my belief that phosphorus is a planet. Whereas if I say Hesperus is a planet, that expresses my different belief. That Hesperus is a planet. So the the sentences seem to have link, different linguistic functions in this respect, and that's what he's really arguing for. But he just takes for granted uh, that 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 there's this difference at the level of belief, and so in a certain sense, he he doesn't have to say anything about what the difference is at the level of language because he's just assuming that he already understands it at the level of belief, whereas we don't tend to assume that. Um, and he, he just doesn't have very much to say about it. I mean, and there's a late paper, uh, one of the last papers that he wrote and published called Der Gedanke, which translates as thoughts or the thought, in which he Gedanke. has something to say about the nature of sense. Um, but he doesn't, he never really gives us anything approximating a, a, a decent theory of it. Um, it really, I mean, there's a, there's a, in chapter six of Frege Philosophy of Language, Dummett's great huge thick book on Frege. Um it's is called Some Theses of Frege's on Sense and Reference. And Dummett lays out these ten principles that Frege has that kind of govern the notion of sense and reference. And in that sense, I think it's it's in some ways best thought of as a theoretical notion. It's not something I mean, my own view is that you're never going to get get something of like the sense of Hesperus equals, and then you're going to be able to write something else down to say kind of exactly what it is. I think it's more like, you know, the way people think of notions like force and mass and Newtonian mechanics. They're defined by the theoretical role that they play in, you know, in Newton's mechanics. And I think the notion of sense is something like this, that we we know what work we want it to do um and so we need to say enough about it to get it you know to sort of pin it down to get it to do that work but to, i think my own view is it's just a mistake to think that the question like well what exactly is the sense of hesperus i i think that's a bad question um it's not it's a question lots of people have wanted to ask um but my own view is that that it, there's no enlightenment to be had by asking that question well, we've talked a, f a fair bit, a, a fair bit amount, a fair amount about 
um, the Zen part of Uber Zen and Bedoitung, but not the Bedoitung part, the mm-hmm. the reference part. Uh, did so Frege didn't have that much to say about sense, but did he have much uh, more to say about the reference? So, so the the no, the term reference is 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 uh, Adamit points this out in Frege philosophy of language is kind of helpfully but also confusingly ambiguous. Um, it is used to mean two quite different things, or really three quite different things. Um, the t- the two that are relevant to Frege are that it can be used to talk about what Dummett suggests we call the referent, which is the thing to which a name refers. So in the case of Hesperus, for example, its referent is the planet Venus. That's what it refers to. Um, but the, note, the term reference can also be used to, to talk about the relation between the name and the, and the thing. Um, the relation of reference, of referring to an object, the relation that holds between a name and the thing that it refers to. And Frege uses the term primarily when he talks about Bedeutung, he means it in the former sense. He's talking about the referent, what Dummett calls the referent, the, the object, the bearer of the name, as, as Dummett puts it. Um, Frege doesn't have a tremendous amount to say about the nature of that relation uh, between the name and the bearer. He thinks that in a certain sense, it's mediated by the sense. Um, that's one thing that he says, uh, but he doesn't give any kind of real explanation about sort of the nature of that relation. And that, of course, is one of the things that philosophers of mind and language have been really, really super interested in. Um, I think that interest probably traces more to Russell than to Frege. Um, in in Russell's uh, in on denoting, and I think it's particularly yeah. clear in his in Russell's paper, uh, knowledge by acquaintance and knowledge by description. Yeah. Before we get into Russell, you can tell me if you think this is roughly on track. But I've always thought of sense and reference as being roughly, at least, describable in this way. So Hesperus, uh, the reference of Hesperus is venus right and so is the reference of phosphorus but so it's a way of it's what it points to that's the referent i I like and then the sense of the term is granted much much harder to really explain but it's sort of the way in which the term points to this other thing. So yeah, Frege has, describes it yeah. as the mode of presentation. That's the phrase that he uses. It's the, it, okay. Evans calls it a way of thinking of the referent. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, sometimes people have said it's a way of denoting the referent or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. It's, again, yeah, I mean, to say exactly what it is is, is maddeningly <laughs> difficult. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, but it, it's something, it, it, I mean, I, I tend to think of it as something like um, a kind of uh, it's it's some kind of feature of the way in which the thing is represented. Um, mm-hmm. So um, the the well, uh, this, this is going to get really hairy very fast. So yeah. we should. But it might it de- might depend on um, on connotations, or maybe I mean this isn't necessarily things that Frege would say, but just speaking loosely, connotations maybe your causal relation to the term, how you learned about it, all of these sort of things might uh, play a role in the sense that's not so much there in the reference, which is uh, 
more one-dimensional. Yeah, I mean, you can think of, so, um, I mean, I think in some, I think pretty much everyone would agree that the sense has something to do with why this particular name refers to the object that it does. Um, I don't think it's, I mean, it has something to do with that. Um, And so the thought would be something like, look, the story about why Hesperus refers to Venus is different from the story about why Phosphorus refers to Venus. One of them has to do with Venus is being visible in the evening sky, and one of them has to do with Venus is being visible in the morning sky. And we don't know how to say exactly what the sense is, but it's got something to do with that difference, um, that that the, the use of Hesperus to refer to Venus is kind of grounded in this perceptual phenomenon of people being able to see it in the evening sky, whereas Venus, the use of phosphorus is grounded in, the, in a different phenomenon. Something like that is what's explaining the difference. Hmm. So getting back to then Russell, who you mentioned briefly, I mean, he uh, was also, I mean, a towering figure in philosophy a little bit after uh, Frege. I think he actually, came, maybe this is historically inaccurate, but did he say that he came upon the denoting relation himself independently of Frege, or was that a dispute about um, something? It might have been about first order logic or logic. Yeah, Frege had, uh, Russell had become interested in this same set of questions independently of Frege um, mm-hmm. and wrote uh, in his great book, Principles of Mathematics from 1903. Uh, there was extensive discussion of these kinds of issues. Um, Russell had a notion that he called denoting concepts, which was at least in the roughly the same ballpark as Frege's notion of sense. Um, And Russell ended up including a very long appendix to the principles in which he discussed Frege. Uh, And Frege, in the meantime, he had sort of discovered Frege while the book effectively was in press. And so he wrote this appendix in which he brought Frege really, in a way, the, for the first time to the attention of the English-speaking philosophical world. In, in, I mean, there were you know some people who knew who Frege was, but it was largely through the appendix to the principles that Frege comes to the attention of the English-speaking world. Yeah, and, and presumably many more people know Bertrand Russell's name than they do Frege's, but yeah. Russell is also, I mean, a, a towering figure. He, run, he won, a, I think, a Nobel Prize in literature. Uh, Justin Clark Doan, who is a good friend of mine at Columbia, and he he thinks that uh, Russell's like the greatest philosopher of the 20th century, and I don't I don't know how I could really disagree with that. But for a while, I was quite interested in Russell, historically mm-hmm. speaking, and looked a lot at his 1903 Principles of Mathematics, mm-hmm. and and by that point, he was already talking about reference and he was i mean then on denoting came out in 1905 i don't recall the year of knowledge by acquaintance and description or description and acquaintance Uh, but he was also heavily influenced by Meinong and wanted Mm -hmm. to refute that sort of realism i don't know if that played as much of a role uh, for frega but how roughly did russell treat reference differently uh, from Frege. So Russell, more so than Frege, was interested, as I mentioned, in the relationship between 
um, sense and reference, or sorry, between a, a name and an object that it denotes. And as I said, this this comes out, I think, most strict, you know, strikingly in Knowledge by Coins and Knowledge by Description, which was published in 1910. Um, so there, Russell, he 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 points out that the way he puts it is that um, sometimes when we think about an object. Uh, what makes it possible for us to do so is that we stand in some kind of perceptual relation to the object. So this cup, for example, right? I could think about this cup right now. Um, and what allows me to do that is the fact that I can see it, right? I Somehow my capacity to think about the cup is just grounded in this perceptual relation that I have to it. But Russell points out that there are lots of things that we can think about that we don't have any perceptual relation to. Um, he historical figures are an example that Fred, that Russell uh, uses. So I can think about Plato or Aristotle or Frege, for that matter, right? Who I or Russell, who I've never had any kind of perceptual connection to. And Russell asks the question, like, how is that possible? Right? I mean, it, it there's a, there's a good question to be asked about, like, well, how does my be seeing the cup make it possible for me to think about it? I mean, it's not you know. You can ask that question too, but Frey, Russell thinks it's kind of extra puzzling how it is that I can think about things that I have no perceptual relation to. Russell, this perceptual relation, what I'm calling the perceptual relation is roughly speaking what Russell calls acquaintance. Um, he has sort of strange views about what kinds of things you can be acquainted with, but it's that distinction between kind of the things that you're acquainted with, roughly speaking, the things you can perceive and the things you can't that he's interested in. And he wants to give some kind of account of how it is that thought about not perceptually available objects is possible. I'm not enough of a Russell scholar to know the answer to the following question. Um, but I, I think part of what's driving Russell's interest in this is that he was at that time particularly interested in logic and mathematics. And among the kinds of objects that we don't have perceptual relationships with are mathematical objects, like numbers and sets. Nor, at least normally, I think one doesn't think you can see the number 37, uh, right? You can see some things, you can see a number, you know, numeral 37 written down, but the number itself, you can't see the set of all natural numbers or, you know, some, some complex function, you know, you can't see things like that. And so I think part of the reason Russell gets interested in this is because of the mathematical case. But as he says, there, there are plenty of cases just involving ordinary physical objects that we don't have any perceptual relationship to and yet can think about, um, like hmm. Russell or Frego or Aristotle or Plato or, for that matter, Pluto, you know. <laughs> Um, in my case, so there, that's the so, this, so that distinction is kind of what underlies Russell's interest, and he then propounds a theory, what he calls knowledge by description, of how it is possible for us to think about objects that we're not perceptually acquainted with, and that issue of you know what makes that possible, that's the issue that really animates a lot of discussion in philosophy of language. No, I have. I realized that I forgot to ask you something uh, that I found important historically and a curious a curiosity that I didn't quite uh, understand. So we talked uh, with Frego. We talked about how the like Hesperus and Phosphorus uh, 
how they point to an object. That's their mm-hmm. reference. Now, I seem to recall that for propositions as a whole, Frege had a, a very curious notion about the reference of propositions, and it was that they pointed to the true the and true false. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. What does what did that really mean? Like, what did what did to point to truth values? I mean, they have to sort of be objects. Like, what mm-hmm. what was the reasoning behind this, and what what does it mean to think of the true as or the false as an object? What, like, what's their metaphysical status? Maybe. Yeah. So there there are two different aspects to this doctrine of Frege's. So Frege thinks that not only names, but all well-formed grammatical expressions have both reference and sense. So in the case of a predicate like, uh, you know, is green, uh, Frege thinks that it has a reference and a sense. The reference is what he calls a concept, um, but is maybe most easily thought of as, as what in logic nowadays you would call an extension. It's just the set of objects okay. of which the thing is true. So it wasn't um, an abstract object. Sorry? So it wasn't an abstract object. It was well, more like a, set, a mariological a fusion. Be, it, no, it, it, it would be a set. So it is an abstract okay. object. Um, okay. So um, a person maybe would be a better example for that. Um, right. So it's the, the extension of the term is a person is just a set of people. Um Frege, it's not it's not exactly what his view is, but the the, the differences are not important for right now. Um, so he, this leads him in on sense and reference to ask the question what the reference of a complete sentence is. So if you take the sentence phosphorus is a planet, for example, and Frege's view is that the sentence refers to its truth value. If it's true, it refers to the true, and if it's false, it refers to the false. He does think that uh, the true and the false are objects. Um, but that is, um, uh, it's worth separating these two aspects of the view. I mean, you can have this kind of, in a way, metaphysical conception of what truth values are or something. But his idea, as Dummett puts it, is that the central sort of um, semantic fact about a sentence is it's being true or false. That that's, um, and, it, and I think it, it's helpful to sort of think of this in terms of logic again. So, and I think this is really why Frege thinks this, is that if you think about um, truth tables, right? Truth tables generate truth values of conjunctions and disjunctions and so forth simply by operating on truth values. And that's how kind of Frege is thinking of it. He's thinking that, I think what motivates him is more how the truth value of one sentence affects like a conjunction or a disjunction or something than it is kind of thinking of the sentence standing on its own. He's really thinking of sentences, not just as things that can stand on their own, but also as parts of larger constructions, which you can you know create using truth functional connectives and things like that. And so he's, He's his his doctrine that sentences refer to their truth values is a way of is a way of kind of committing to truth functionality and logic that when we go to say how a sentence contributes to the truth or falsity of a more complicated thing, what it contributes is its truth value, right? And you just look at the truth tables to to do this. Um, he does have things to say about so-called intentional constructions, but 
um, he thinks of those as kind of exceptions to the rule uh, that the truth value is the only thing that matters. Intentional being like a belief or like a intention be belief within, that within construction. Us. Yeah, that's right. So in the case of belief type constructions, like John believes that snow is white, truth, is, you know, truth is not the only, the truth of the sentence snow is white is not the only thing that matters there, right? You can't replace it with any other true sentence and still get a true sentence. Whereas if it's a conjunction, then you can, or at least, you know, from the point of view of logic, you can. Um, so that's, that's kind of where that's coming from. Um, I'm trying to remember which, there's a paper, there's a whole series of papers that I wrote together with Robert May in which we try to fit all these pieces um, of Frege's views together. Um, I'm trying to remember which one. So, uh, we, we have a paper called Truth and Frege, uh, which, you can, which people can find on my website if they're interested, that, that talks at some length about why Frege holds this view and kind of what it really means in the context of his philosophy. And we have another more recent one called The Birth of Semantics, which which goes on about the same set of issues. Okay. Well, thank, thanks for satisfying my question about the true. It's always been sort of something I was curious about. Now, going back to Russell for a bit and on to noting. Now, I think that paper is, along with maybe on what there is, I, I think of it as a real, pure, paradigmatic case of what analytic philosophy is all about, in that it's about taking something puzzling and analyzing it and breaking it down into smaller components. So that, that paper, as I recall, concerns constructions such as the such and such. Mm -hmm. And one purpose of this paper was to deal with constructions like the such and such where there is no such and such mm -hmm. uh, because we talked about how okay obviously hesperus and phosphorus they both they both point to this object but what how does a a term like the such and such focus um function in a sentence when there when there is no such and such like mm -hmm. in a sentence the the present king of france is bald where right. there is no uh, present right. king of france now maybe this would be a good time to, or a good way to explain just what his his theory of denoting was and why it solved this fairly pressing puzzle for these early philosophers of language. Yeah, so it's actually one of the things that's very interesting about that paper, which my sense is that, you know, when people read it today, they kind of read very fast over the first three or four pages to, so they can get to the good part, which is where Russell talks about what he calls descriptions, that is phrases of the form, the so-and-so. But the paper actually begins by talking about a much broader range of constructions. Uh, Russell includes all things like all men, every man, some man, no man, uh, and so forth uh, in his, what we would now call quantifier phrases. Um, mm -hmm. But in <sighs> In 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 print the principles, Russell has this very strange view about how these things work, and the view is that um, that they denote like that. His view is that an expression like "all men" denotes a variable man, right? It doesn't denote any particular man; it denotes a variable man, and he thinks that different. Quantif you know, what we would call quantifier constructions like all man, some man, every man, denote different kinds of variable men. Uh, 
And as you can imagine, this, this just becomes an absolute nightmare very, very fast. And so the first thing that Russell does in that paper is to dispense with this view that phrases like every man, a man, no man, some man refer to anything, that, they, that their job is to denote things. And that, I mean, today, I mean, from our kind of standpoint today, that just seems like, well, obviously they don't, you know, they're quantifiers, right? But at the time, this was a revolutionary idea, actually. And much of the work Russell is doing in that paper is, is, is toward that end of, of establishing the claim that phrases like every man, a man, no man, and so forth are not of the same grammatical category as names, like Plato or Aristotle or Hesperus or Phosphorus, even though, and this I think is kind of the root of the confusion, they appear in the same grammatical places, right? So if I can, I can say phosphorus is a planet, I can say every planet is a planet, I can say some planet is a planet, right? I can put these quantifier phrases in the same places as names. And in what, what Russell would have called traditional logic, um, Wittgenstein often uses this phrase, that is the logic that we get from Boole uh, and the Boolean logicians, proper names really were treated as of the same grammatical category as expressions like some man, every man, and a man. And so, and Frege too goes on about this at great length, the importance of drawing a sharp distinction between the, the logical role that's played by names and the logical role that's played by expressions like every man, a man, and so man, some man. And so I think when you see that, the, the paper makes a certain, makes more sense because you can see that what Russell's doing in the paper is the, the central question of the paper then becomes, well, where do phrases like the so-and-so go? Like the King of France or the King of England. Are those to be grouped with names? Do they function the way names do? Or rather, should they be grouped with expressions like every man, some man, no man, and so forth, so that they are in effect what we would call quantifier phrases? And Russell argues for the latter position, right? Um, in part for the, for I mean, he has several reasons for this, but one of the reasons he gives is that phrases like the King of France don't refer to anything. And Russell thinks that a name that doesn't refer to anything is kind of radically defective in a certain sense. Um, and so in order to kind of save the phrase from this radical defect, he thinks it's better to think of it as a quantifier rather than as a name. And that I think is, is really how people think of Russell's view today, that when what, what Russell's view is, is that descriptions are quantifiers, that's his view. Um, he has lots of more specific views than that. Um, you know, there, there are different ways of implementing that idea and Russell has a certain proposal about that. Um, but the, the core idea is that descriptions are quantifiers. That's, that's what Russell's arguing for. So how, how then does this relate to that example that I gave before of the present king of France? Like, how are we supposed to analyze or understand that sentence so as to give it uh, a truth value the present king of France uh, is bald that we all agree on using this this scheme with definite descriptions. Yeah, so so Russell's Russell's 
own view is that descriptions, descriptive phrases like that should be thought of as um, involving a kind of ex assertion of existence and an assertion of uniqueness, and then an assertion that the uniquely existing thing has whatever properties involved. So in the case of the King of France is bald, he analyzes that as meaning something like, there is a king of there is at least one king of France, and there is only one king of France, and that thing is bald, right? That's Russell's mm -hmm. account. And so if that's what it means, then it's just straightforwardly false because the as it were conjunct, there is a king of France is false. And so the whole thing has to be false. So in other words, I, there is nothing in our domain of quantification that we can substitute in place of the X. Uh, for there is such and such a thing to make the sentence true, so it's false. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's just, I mean, for Russell, it's, I mean, one way to think of it is that Russell thinks that the King of France is bald just logically implies that there is a King of France. And so if there isn't a King of France, then the sentence is just false. Um, mm -hmm. That, I mean, that's, you know, his, so, um, I mean, he has a particular way of kind of writing this out in his own logical notation and so forth, but you can think of it as just meaning something like, you know, there exists a thing which is the king, a, you know, a king of France, and anything that is a king of France is that thing, and that, that is, there's only one, uh, and that thing is bald. And you can just write that out straightforwardly mm -hmm. in, in logical notation, mm -hmm. uh, which is what Russell does. Um, and this also, by you know, note sort of is, is Russell's answer to the question how it's possible to think about things that you're not acquainted with, because he thinks the answer to how we can do that is by describing them. So I can, you know, say describe Aristotle as the, per, you know, the, the, the philosopher who was a student of Plato and wrote the Nicomachean Ethics. And so when I, so on Russell's view, when I say that Aristotle, you know, was Greek or something, what I mean is something like, well, there is a person who was a student of Plato and wrote the Nicomachean Ethics, and there was only one such person, and that person uh, was Greek. And it's sort of not, you know, how, how, how that description can, can work is, Russell thinks, is kind of relatively unpuzzling. Um, and mm -hmm. so that's his answer to the question, is that's what he calls knowledge by description, is when I, 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 describe the object that I'm interested in. I pick it out by describing it, not by seeing it. And this, of course, I mean, relates clearly uh, back to how we began this whole conversation, which is what it is that connects uh, thoughts to the world. And in this case, it's description. Now, I, I spoke with uh, Graham Priest a few episodes back, and he's uh, a nunist, which is... Mm -hmm. A school, the school yeah. started by his friend Richard Routley, in which he believes that there are non-existent objects, mm -hmm. and our words uh, can indeed refer to them because mm -hmm. they they're in our they're within our domain of mm -hmm. discourse. So it, it's what uh, accounts for a sentence like Sherlock Holmes live at, lives at such and such mm -hmm. address uh, being. Uh, true. We can assign a truth value to that. Now, do you happen to know if Russell gave an account for how we can guarantee the truth value of sentences concerning uh, fictional objects when there are no such objects? I don't know if Russell ever wrote about this. Um, it's actually a... Seems like a more modern problem. 
Yeah, it's well, so Frege mentions this too, actually. Um, so he, he gives the example Odysseus was set ashore at Ithaca. And Frege, um, one of the things that Frege mentions in this discussion of this is that there are kind of two different ways of taking a sentence like that. You can take it kind of, so to speak, historically seriously, right? So a historian, you can imagine a historian uh, wanting to try to figure out where Odysseus was set ashore, right? After all his travels or whatever it is, right? Um, such a person uh, would not, I mean, for, if we think of the sentence that way, we should not regard it as true, right? Because there was no such person as Ithaca, as Odysseus. He wasn't set ashore anywhere. Um, you know, if we take this sentence historically seriously, then it's just not true. But there's another way of understanding it, uh, which involves what people have come to call discourse about the novel or fictional discourse, where when I say Odysseus was set ashore at Ithaca, what I mean is something roughly like, right, in the story, Odysseus is set ashore at Ithaca. And it's an unfortunate fact, actually, about a lot of these discussions that people tend to go for these fictional examples, but they have this, this kind of dual nature that I've just described, that you have to be clear, like, which of those two ways of understanding the sentence you're, you're thinking about. And it's really only when we're taking it in the historical sense that it's relevant to this discussion. In the fictional sense, there are tons of different theories about how that kind of discourse works. Um, one of the best or sort of first really serious proposals about this is in David Lewis's paper, Truth in Fiction. Um, Saul Kripke has a, a, a more re recent paper in which he arg offer, um, argues for a view that's in a way closer to priests, um, that he thinks that there are just, there are such things as fictional characters and we can sometimes refer to them. Um, but note that this doesn't commit Kripke to nonism. I mean, he doesn't have to think that there's a round square or anything like that, that, that Meinong thought there was. And it's more, you know, it's, it's better to sort of, in these contexts, I think, to think of cases of, of, of um, proper names that just genuinely don't refer to anything. Um, not because they're fictional, but just because they were intended, they were always intended seriously as proper names and they just don't refer to anything. Um, one, there are some um, classical uh, scholars, uh, my understanding is, I could be wrong about this, but it kind of doesn't matter for the process of the example, um, who think that Homer there just wasn't such a person as that. There's no, there just isn't a such a person as Homer. That that name became associated with the Odyssey and the Iliad for, you know, complex kind of confused historical reasons, and that there just wasn't a person like that. Um, maybe those books were written by a number of different people, or you know, who knows what. Um, if so, then that would be a good example to use here because it's not that. Like there's this fictional character, Homer, that that refers to. And I can say, well, Homer wrote the Iliad in the story. No, I mean, like if, if Homer just didn't exist, then that's kind of the end of it. People like Priest think that nonetheless, the name Homer refers to something. Um, it refers to an object that is merely possible and not actual or something like that. Um, but it's, it's important, I think, 
as I said, to sort of distinguish that case where we're dealing with names that purport to refer to actually existing objects, but don't refer to anything from the fictional case where the name Sherlock Holmes, at least as normally used, does not purport to refer to an actually existing object. It, yeah. It's purely I fictional. I don't think Graham's view is that you're restricted to possible but not actual objects, because I think you... For him, you can also refer to the round square. Yeah, impossible is, objects too. Which is yeah. impossible. I think. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I think they're yeah. just non-existent objects broadly. Hold on a sec. Me... Broadly construed. Sure. And Close that window. Yeah. Yeah. Graham. One... Graham has a very rich ontology. Yes. <laughs> very rich. Very yeah. rich. Um, uh, the opposite very... of Quine, right? Who? Yeah. Quine not professed an affinity for desert landscapes. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, one problem for me, just on the surface of it, accepting that there are words that genuinely don't refer, is then such sentences seem, on the face of it at least, like they would require an entirely different sort of semantics. But a real motivating concern in like philosophy of math, which I'm very close to, is trying to preserve uh, a, a semantics for natural mm -hmm. language. I mean, that was one of Benasseraf's considerations mm -hmm. with what what's now known as the, the Benasseraf field mm -hmm. uh, problem. Yeah. But are are you familiar much with Meinong? Not his... really. I mean, I I know okay. that. I mean, I've I've read a tiny bit of Meinong. I mean, Meinong is an early proponent of this kind of view, and historically speaking, Russell kind of begins as a kind of disciple of Meinong, and on denoting really represents the end of Russell's break with with that tradition. Um, I think that was in process. You can already see it happening in on to, in, in principles. But um, yeah, Russell's earliest writings are much more in this idealistic tradition um, that Meinong represents. And um, you know, uh, so-called absolute idealism as it was practiced in Britain at the time. Um, and Russell, after this kind of change, becomes one of the, the great British realists, uh, along with G. Moore and others, uh, who represent a real revolution in British philosophy. So uh, a final question about this era, and it stems from a question that you put elsewhere, which was, what makes a belief, say, the belief that snow is white, uh, rather than the belief that three plus four is twenty-two, like what what distinguishes these beliefs? And maybe uh, in answering that question or summing it up, that you think maybe that puts a bit of a, a close to the um, the the time period we've just been discussing. Um, I don't think that any of the figures that we've been talking about really has a very satisfying answer to that question. Um, oh, okay. They they identify it, um, but no, one thing that's always kind of puzzled me about some of these discussions, and I mean Russell has an out here, um, is that they they tend to take reference to things like properties kind of for granted. Um, so Russell's like super puzzled about how it is that I can refer to objects that I'm not perceptually acquainted with. But in giving that answer, he just kind of assumes that I can refer to things like 
writing and colors and all these you know properties. Now Russell has a kind of excuse here because he thinks that we are acquainted in some sense with properties, um, but I don't find that very satisfying. Um, and so Russell doesn't seem to have much to say about what makes it possible for me to have what you might call purely general beliefs, like the belief that every man will die or something. Um, he's very puzzled about how I can have beliefs about specific individual particular objects, but he doesn't seem to be very puzzled about how I can have these purely general beliefs. And his solution to the problem about how I can think about individual objects is to reduce those cases to the case of purely general beliefs, which he isn't puzzled about. But I've always been puzzled myself why he's not more puzzled than he is. Um, it will be another few decades before people start to get interested and take seriously that kind of question. Um, and, you know, I think in, in contemporary, in contemporary discussions, you know, people do take seriously both questions. Okay. Well, great. Time to, to switch gears a little bit. Now there's an, another philosopher, very important to the reference discussion that I, uh, actually really know nothing about. And that's P.F. Strawson, uh, mm -hmm. though I do know that he's associated with a philosophical school called ordinary language philosophy. So maybe you could start by informing me about what ordinary language philosophy is, how how it why it was a big turn from what was going on before and so how it relates to reference. Starts out as a kind of ally of the ordinary language folks. Um, and they are kind of characterized by a very, very detailed, close attention to the way that language is used in ordinary life. Whereas Russell, he, you know, he's really interested in logic, right? That's what he cares about. Um, and one of the things you see happen in the, in, the, in the early discussions of ordinary language stuff, for example, are, so Strawson in his book, Introduction to Logical Theory, raises questions about whether the English word and is actually commutative. Um, that is to say, whether A and B and B and A will always have the same truth value. Now, in ordinary truth functional logic, this is assumed, right? And it just has a certain truth table that makes it commutative. All that's required for a conjunction to be true is for both the conjuncts to be true. But Strawson mentions these examples like, uh, I think, I don't know. I can't think this is one of his examples. Um, they got married and had a baby versus they had a baby and got married, right? Um, and Strawson says, look, uh, the former, right? They got, maybe, they got married and had a baby is kind of unexceptional. Whereas they had a baby and got married when Strawson was writing in the 1950s, right? That would have been a very different situation. Uh, I mean, of course, they're different situations in a different sense, but right, one of them would have been a, a kind of controversial and the other wouldn't have been controversial. And so Strawson thinks, suggests that the word and in its ordinary English usage um, can sometimes have this kind of temporal feature that when you say this and that, what you mean is this and then that, right? And if that's true, 
then and in English is not commutative, right? You can't mm -hmm. just switch the order of the two conjuncts at will. And um, Russell, uh, and I mean, so Strassen gets into a big argument with Quine about this. And Quine's, Quine, Quine just like doesn't care. He's like, who gives a crap, you know? I don't, I don't care how, how well or not well the logical word and cor corresponds to the English word and. He just, he's just not, he didn't care about that. But the ordinary language people, that's what they care about. And they, they think that it's a kind of, that sort of philosophical puzzles, generally speaking, arise from a kind of abuse of ordinary language that, um, so Austin, John Austin, J.L. Austin uh, goes on at great length, for example, about the, you know, the actual conditions under which it's okay to call an act voluntary. And he thinks if we, if only we pay super close attention to when it is that you can call an act voluntary and when you can't call it voluntary and when you would call it involuntary and stuff like that, then the whole puzzle about free will will just sort of go away. Um, that it's because of philosophers kind of lose touch with the ordinary use of words like voluntary or, you know, and stuff that puzzles about free will or whatever get generated. And Strawson, as I say, he begins as a kind of ally of, of that group, but he, he doesn't end up that way. Um, he ends up much more of a kind of conventional analytic philosopher. Uh, um, and I, I don't know when that happens in Strawson, um, but I think, I think his, his discussion with Quine has some influence on, on this. And where, maybe you can say more explicitly, how this relates to reference or yeah, so, so this part we've been doesn't very much. Um, the ordinary language part doesn't really have much to do with Strawson's work on reference. Um, okay. But I mentioned a while ago that there, there are actually three things that the notion of re word refer or refer reference gets used for. One is the thing being pointed to, the bearer, uh, what Dummett calls the referent. The second is the relation that obtains between the word and its bearer. And the third is the one that Strawson is most interested in, which is an act that you can perform. So I can ask you, like, who were you referring to when you said such and such? But here, referring is something that people do, right? You it's refer to intentions. things, right? By Maybe by using a word, but you don't have to use a word. You could just gesture or point or something, like, who were you pointing at? Or, you know, I can say things like that. And so Strawson thinks that um, that that's the most fundamentally important notion is the notion of a person referring to a thing, not um, this, what you might call logical relation between a word and its reference. And he, he argues in, in On Referring that, that Russell is sort of Russell's discussion of descriptions is sort of undermined by his failure to make this distinction between the, the logical relation between the name and its bearer and the act of referring, which he thinks is more important. And Strawson thinks, uh, you know, he, again, and this, you know, maybe in a way this does have something to do with his sort of close attention to language, yeah, um, ordinary language, ordinary right? That, um, yeah, I mean, so he's interested in kind of the way, you know, the, the, the act of reference as it's used in ordinary life. But he, he points out, for example, that I can say things like the table is covered with books. And from Russell's point of view, that it's, it looks like that should mean something like there is one and only one table and it's covered with books. But of course, there isn't only one table. And so it looks like Russell should regard that as false. Uh, whereas Strassen thinks, no, look, that's absurd. We shouldn't regard 
that the table is covered with books is false simply on the ground that there's not only one table in the entire universe. He thinks it can be perfectly clear what a person is referring to in a situation like that. And that, you know, they have said of that thing that it's covered with books and that can be true, right? Um, that's the way that Strawson wants to, he wants to kind of reorient things away from the question, well, what does this word refer to? Or what does this particular phrase, the table refer to? And toward the question, well, what is this person using that phrase to refer to? That's the question that Strawson's interested in. So no, he sees, a, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say that as a, a very logically oriented person, do you find this branch of the reference tree to be less interesting than some of the other ones? Um, I have actually written this paper um, called Semantics and Context Dependence Towards a Strassonian perspective or something like this. And I, I, I think there's a deep insight in here in Strassen. I, I think it's it's actually, Strassen is elsewhere in his writings, I think even more interested in, in demonstrative phrases like that table. And in a case like that, you know, so if I you know, imagine someone saying that table is covered with books, it's clear that the word, the words that table do not refer to anything, right? I mean, just think of the words that table when you ask, what do those words refer to? The answer is those words do not refer to anything. They can be used to refer to lots of different things, right? Somebody on a particular occasion, those words could refer to a particular thing, but the words themselves don't refer to anything. And so when you, if you're going to look closely at, um, at these kinds of expressions, so-called context-dependent expressions like demonstrative phrases like that table or that person, um, then you have to start, I think, looking more closely at facts about the way the phrase is being used. Strawson may or may not be right to see a similar phenomenon going on with descriptions, but I think he's absolutely right that if we, you know, when we come to look at demonstratives, which Russell, you know, doesn't have as much to say about, then we have to start in, invoking notions like this. I mean, that, that's my own view. Um, but one of the things that's really, I think Strawson's paper is probably the first paper that, well, it's definitely the first paper that I know of that starts to take this kind of context-dependent language seriously. Um, and I think it probably is fair to say that it's because of Strawson's kind of ordinary language orientation that he does this. Because in logic, right, I mean, you just don't have this, right? Logic In logic, everything means, you know, it's set down in advance what everything means. It doesn't change from yeah. time to time or anything like that. But in ordinary language, we have, you know, context, context dependence is just pervasive. And so, in you know, I think, what the the real lasting contribution of that paper is to bring context dependence into the kind of philosophical mainstream. Yeah, I mean, there's a world of difference, more than a world of difference between formal languages and natural languages. And then when you want to give the natural languages a very strict, or maybe strict is the opposite of the word that I'm looking for, but an ordinary natural language mm -hmm. uh, interpretation mm -hmm. but in talking saying that there's a world of difference between them maybe brings us to our next chapter and while i think the the, the prior chapters have really uh exemplified 
the the nerd stuff dimension to mm-hmm. the philosophy of language. This I think is much more of much broader interest, and that would be mm-hmm. Kripke, Lewis, and necessity, possibility, and mm-hmm. by extension, uh, possible worlds. How all of mm-hmm. this relates to the reference issue. So maybe does does this all start with Kripke's naming and necessity? Um, to some extent it does. I mean, I guess that's where it becomes the, it, it sort of blossoms. Um, but it, it has its roots in Carnap and Quine, uh, really. So Carnap in, um, in, in Carnap's book, Meaning and Necessity, he, he aims to give a, to sort of bring the tools of formal logic to bear on natural language. Uh, that's one of the, it's it's one of the first places that you start to see kind of real natural language semantics being born, and Carnap he 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 was a student of Frege's, and so he's very aware of the distinction between sense and reference, and he wants to give a kind of formal logical account of it, and so reference <clears throat> excuse me comes over into Carnap's treatment um, as what he calls extension. And sense comes over as what he calls intention. And intentions for Carnap are um, functions from possible worlds to extensions. So it's easiest to sort of think about this with property words. So if you think about the property of being green, say, then its extension is just the set of green things, right? The set of things the word is true of. Its intention will be, as it were, a different set for each possible world. It'll be the set of things that are green in that possible world. Alternatively, we can think of it as a function from worlds to the corresponding set. And so Carnap is already kind of bringing in these notions of necessity and possibility, modal notions, into the analysis of natural language. And he and Quine, uh, I mean, Quine becomes kind of particularly interested in this and in um, certain kinds of puzzles that this gives rise to, certain kinds of problems that he thinks this gives rise to, that kind of get solved in effect by Kripke. Um, And that's all bound up with Kripke's invention of modal logic in the late 50s and, or well, not invention, but of, of modal semantics as we now understand it for quantified modal logic in the late 1950s. And um so it you know it has its earlier roots but it's really in Kripke that that all of this kind of as I put it earlier blossoms and becomes a kind of central preoccupation of of people in the way it is today well why don't we talk then about um, the causal theory that Kripke averred I I remember when I I I took modal logic with Tamar Lando at uh Columbia and she's absolutely brilliant and a terrific logician and i i messaged her about the class because i this was before i really knew what modal logic was i signed up for modal logic i asked what are we doing in this class is this just reading uh naming and necessity mm-hmm. and i was i was very wrong yeah so kripke so as i mentioned before russell has this view that what makes it possible for us to think about objects that we're not acquainted with, that aren't perceivable by us, is our ability to describe them. 
And this is what came to be known as the description theory of names. So the idea was that most names, especially people tended to focus on historical figures. So take Aristotle as an example. How is it that I can think about Aristotle given that I can't perceive him? Answer, I can describe him. So the name on this theory has to be associated with some kind of descriptive information that would suffice to pick out that particular object. Maybe it's, as I said before, like the, you know, the person who was the teacher of Aristotle or student of Plato and wrote, you know, the Nicomachean Ethics or whatever. Um, now, it, what Kripke sets out to do in naming necessity is to undermine this account. Um, and he does it in, in, in a number of steps. Um, the first is he attacks a, a very strong form of this view, uh, which would hold, as he tends to put it, that names are just kind of synonymous with the corresponding descriptions. So, or Russell in some of his writings says that names are just abbreviations for description, right. corresponding because description. they sort so, of expand when you logically. Yeah, when right. I was when I was talking about logical analysis or analytic philosophy, you just they're identical in the sense that when you analyze it, it expands sort of into yeah. this. Yeah. Uh, so you like, think of it as like, like a definition, right? A definition just right. gives you a kind of brief, you know, way of expressing right. something. And, but really it kind of expands. Right. You so like the King of the France, as, yeah. as you put it, is uh, this um, existence condition, the uniqueness condition, and then, I mean, the satisfaction of the predicate, so forth and yeah. such, such and such. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so Kripke initially addresses this this very strong form of the view um, that uh, that names are kind of abbreviations for descriptions, and what he points out is that um, this he he argues that this is incorrect because it the names and descriptions have different behavior in in modal environments. So um, the, an example might be something like. Um, so it's actually helpful in this in this context to use as examples what what Gareth Evans called descriptive names. So these are names that are kind of it, it actually is true that the reference is just fixed by some description. So Michael Dummett gives a few examples of this, but the one I tend to use is the the name Saint Anne. So uh, Saint Anne, that name refers to the mother of the Virgin Mary. Okay? That's what it refers to. That's how it's defined in effect. There's nothing, she is not, Mary's mother is not mentioned in the New Testament. She is mentioned in some of the so-called apocryphal writings, but we know nothing about her other than that she was a Jewish woman living in Palestine, you know, around the early beginning of the common era, right? That's, that's, that's it. That's all we know about St. Anne, right? So the name just, refers to whoever Mary's mother was. That's who it refers to. It, so it, it's, it's in a way a kind of analytic truth, right? That St. Anne was the mother of Mary because that's just how the word is defined. But Kripke points out, it's really now I'm taking sort of Dummett's version of this. Um, so it's a kind of, but it's not a necessary truth that St. Anne was the mother of Mary because St. Anne, like anybody else, could have gotten some horrible childhood illness and died at the age of five, right? Now we know that in fact, St. Anne didn't die at the age of five because 
by definition, St. Anne is whoever Mary's mother was, and she didn't have Mary at the age of four. But of course, it's possible for St. Anne to die, have died in infancy. I mean, it's not like she had some special immunity that nobody else had. So, so if you consider the two sentences, St. Anne might have died in infancy, and the mother of Mary might have died in infancy, Kripke says, look, the first sentence is true, the second sentence is false. So you can't just replace St. Anne by the mother of Mary, right? And preserve truth value. The mother of Mary died in infancy is, is false, right? It's just, that couldn't have been true. It could not have been true that the mother of Mary died in infancy because infants don't have children. But St. Anne might've died in infancy. That is true because, you know, Saint, the sentence St. Anne died in infancy, that could have been true, right? Even though it's yeah, not that's true, fascinating. it could have been true, right? So, so that's Kripke's argument, right? That if St. Anne was just an abbreviation for the mother of Mary, then I could just replace St. Anne with the mother of Mary anywhere with the same truth value, but it looks like I can't do that, right? In particular, I can't do that in these modal contexts. Um, and now, of course, there are responses to that and so forth, but that's the basic argument that Kripke gives, and that's the role that modality plays in the argument, um, is that it just provides an appropriate kind of uh, um, kind of context in which this substitution fails. Hmm. And did this then spawn into a debate with David Lewis at all? Because I, I, I think of them as being sort of on opposite sides of um, a war a, a war of the possible mm -hmm. worlds. Yeah, so Naming Necessity is a book that um, uh, it covers a lot of ground. I mean, there are just, I mean, the book is just brimming with ideas. I mean, there are, you, you could easily, so David, David Kaplan famously teaches an entire graduate seminar on, on sense and reference, and he teaches another entire graduate seminar on, on denoting. You could easily spend an entire graduate seminar on naming necessity, easily. I mean, no problem. Um, there, there are so many different kinds of ideas in that book. And one of the things that's in that book is a kind of criticism of Lewis's, of the way that Lewis thinks of possible worlds. Um, it is, it is really, I mean, I, I tend to think myself that is really obliquely related to what we've just been talking about. I mean, there is, a, there is something you can say about why Kripke talks about it there. Um, if you think about possible worlds the way that Lewis does, then there is a way of moving from that position to a kind of commitment to the description theory. And it's because oh, I see. Lewis's view kind of entails the description theory that Kripke thinks he needs to undermine Lewis's view. Does it right? have something to do with the reference relation and how his view of possible worlds involves picking things out? Through description. So Lewis thinks, so the way Lewis thinks, so Lewis thinks of possible worlds as um, concrete. So maybe the, the science fiction way of thinking of this, like, you know, in science fiction, sometimes you kind of get these alternate universes, right? Like different timelines where things are different from the way they actually are. That's how Lewis thinks about possible worlds. They're like foreign countries in a way. They're there, there are there are universes in which real people live and die and 
love and you know, everything else that they do, just as real as our universe, um, except that they're different, right? That's the only difference. And the only thing that makes our universe special is that we're here, right? Their universe is just as special to them as our universe is to us. And so, and Lewis wants to use these to give an account of what it means to say that things are possible. So ex take an example of Lewis's, he says, look, it's possible that there could be talking donkeys, right? What does that mean according to Lewis? It means there's a possible world where donkeys talk. And when he says there's a possible world where donkeys talk, what he means is there's an alternate universe where donkeys talk, right? A real place with real donkeys that really talk, except it's just not our world. It's a different world. Right? It's a different universe. And it's universe, spatio temporally right? inaccessible to us. Yeah, it's 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 you can't get there from here, right? It's and not because it's too far. It's it's just mm -hmm. you know completely disjoint. So so now think about something like Saint Anne might have died in infancy, right? So if I say that, according to Lewis, what that means is there's a possible world where St. Anne dies, say, at three years old or something, right? Um, okay, now here's the catch. It's not St. Anne who dies, right? Because St. Anne lives in this world, right? So it, it's some other person who dies in that world. But then the question is, well, what the hell's that got to do with St. Anne, right? How can that person dying in that other world make it the case that St. Anne, the real St. Anne, as it were, might have died in infancy. And so you need some way to kind of figure out, so Lewis calls that relation the counterpart relation. So this, this other person is not really St. Anne, but they're kind of playing the St. Anne role, so to speak, right? Mm. So in order to make all this go, you have to have a way of kind of figuring out like which person in that other world counts as the counterpart of St. Anne. And now, you know, lots of hand-waving. Um, it turns out that the kind of the only way to do that is to give kind of purely qualitative conditions that that object has to satisfy. But that's Yeah, what are those right? identity conditions that he suggested? Oh, I, okay, so I see <laughs> now question, where you're right? going with it. Yeah. It has to be description, so that's the that's problem. Right. It has to be some kind of description. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So so that's why Lewis's view just kind of ends up committed to a kind of descriptivism. And that, that's why Kripke discusses it. But it, it okay. really is a kind of, as I say, it ends up being, um, uh, to say that Lewis's view was a minority position would be something of an understatement. So, you know, most people who've been, who were interested in descriptivism were not, in, were not committed to it for that reason, right? They had quite other reasons. Um, just for sociological, for sociological, reasons that are uh, out of curiosity sociological curiosity why was he such a towering figure in philosophy if his views were held by a minority Lewis. namely like him um so i think his 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 particular view about possible worlds which he called himself called mad dog realism um yeah often just known as modal realism um that was a very minority position. Um, not that there haven't been people who held it. I mean, um, but his other view, you know, many of his other views have been profoundly influential. Um, and I think it's worth remembering that um, I hope that we as philosophers do not get evaluated on the basis of whether our views are true, 
right? <laughs> because if, the, if, that's what, if that's what counts as being a good philosopher is that you have lots of true views, then I think we're all in a lot of trouble. What makes mm -hmm. you a good philosopher, of course, is having really good arguments for your views. And Lewis has arguments, you know, um, and there are arguments that repay, you know, serious thought. Um, I think that it's the it's the kind of power of his arguments and the um, I think another thing that makes him such a great philosopher is that he you know his, his views they fit together you know in a way he's he's a kind of um, he has views on tons of different topics and yet they all kind of cohere into this seamless whole you know there aren't a lot mm -hmm. of philosophers like that who are who have um you know their fingers in so many different kinds of issues they're they're very few philosophers you know if you think about aristotle right i mean dude wrote about everything philosophers aren't like that today um but lewis kind of yeah. was like that you know he, he didn't mm -hmm. write about everything but he wrote about a lot of stuff and it all coheres you know there's a there's not there's a vision you know behind it um that i think is part of what has attracted so many people to his work. Yeah, speaking of Aristotle, I'm very much looking forward at some point to doing an episode exclusively on his zoology and uh -huh. biology because that to me is is just uh -huh. so fun. I just learned, I think from Peter Adamson's podcast that Aristotle was the person who discovered that dolphins aren't fish. <laughs> Which, oh, really? What, what a, what a great uh, thing to uh -huh. have. I had under no idea. Your name. Um, yeah, but back to Lewis, just for a moment. It's not necessarily connected to our reference discussion, but did how did he give these identity conditions for picking out who your counterpart is? Um, I don't or know if he ever are. gave very detailed conditions for yeah, this. That's um, a huge gap. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's uh. On the other hand, you know, Frege didn't tell us what sense is either, right? So, mm -hmm. I think Lewis gives you a kind of existence proof, right? That if you want to think of things the way he is, then there must be counterpart relations. Um, he, he you know he he did tend to think I think that 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 these kinds of things were ultimately amenable to kind of a priori philosophical analysis. Um, that's one of the things that's kind of distinctive, I think, of Lewis's way of thinking, that he he is very much committed to to the kind of um I mean this comes up very clearly in his, his theory of mind, for example, that he just he he thinks that kind of you know the kind of reflection, a priori reflection that's kind of typical of traditional philosophy was adequate uh, to resolve these kinds of problems. Um, and yeah, so it turns out to be really hard to figure out exactly what the identity conditions are, you know, but yeah, lots of things are hard, you know. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't think that would have bothered him very much. So the theory that Kripke gives that our did, did you really say uh, precisely why it's called like the causal theory of naming? No, I didn't say anything about that. Okay. And in some ways, okay. I think that 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 term is really misleading, um, because 
as Kripke himself makes clear, and this actually becomes really super clear in uh, Michael Devitt's book, Designation. Um, I think he points this out in his earlier paper, Singular Terms, too. But what Kripke really gives us is a theory. So one way to think of this, this is not the way Kripke describes it. This is closer to what Evans, Gareth Evans says later. But I think this is actually a helpful way to sort of think of this, is that Kripke kind of divides things up into people who are able to use the name to refer to the object because it's perceptually present to them, right? So in the case of the word Aristotle, we could think of like the people who knew him, right? They use the name to refer to Aristotle in this like super direct way because they saw him, right? They could call him Aristotle. Um, and then there's us, right, who, who aren't in that position. And Kripke thinks of our ability to use the name to refer to Aristotle as parasitic on their ability to do so, right? Mm-hmm. So that... It's got a chain. If there's this connection between us and them, right? And Kripke puts this in terms of this chain of, you know, different people picking up the name from other people. Um, and... That's why it's sometimes called the the historical theory of reference. That it it's it's got to do with the historical chain that connects us back to them. So if you want to know like why do why does my word Aristotle refer to Aristotle, the answer is because my use of that word is connected through these links back to the original people who could use the name in this very direct way to refer to him. Kripke actually describes it in terms of Aristotle's being baptized with that name or dubbed with that name, as people sometimes say. Um, I've often wondered, I mean, Kripke was a very, um, very devout conservative Jew, and I've often wondered whether he actually had in mind not baptism, which is more of a Christian notion. A bris. But a bris. Was he brisked right? with that, yeah. that I mean, name. I think that, but of course, only <laughs> Jews get that, right? But on yeah, the other yeah, hand, yeah. you know, so, but I think that's kind of what he had in mind, are these kind of formal naming ceremonies. Um, he didn't think that was necessary for um, a name to be used in that way, but it kind of gives you a vivid idea that I'm kind of connected by this chain back to this original ceremony in which somebody said, this child shall be known as whatever Aristotle was actually known as. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That, that, but that's the, the, the real issue, the real thing. So this is what, what Devitt says is that Kripke gives you, he's not really giving you a theory of reference. He's giving you a theory of reference transfer or reference inheritance, right. Of, how I can inherit the ability to use this name to refer to an object from someone else, right? Who already had that ability. And then we just trace that back over time to the original people. And so if you want to know again, who do I use it for? Well, trace it back and find out who the original people used it to refer to. That'll be the answer, right? So I don't have, and the crucial thing is that I don't have to know about this, right? I don't have to think to myself, well, I guess I use it to refer to whoever that person used to refer to. I just have to be part of the, the chain. I don't have to be, I don't have to think about the chain. I just have to be part of it. And that's enough. So I don't have to frame, I don't have to describe Aristotle as the person that other people use it to refer to or anything like that. I don't have to describe him in any way at all. I just have to be part of this tradition, as it were, um, practice, as sometimes people put it, of using the name in that way. Um, that's enough for me to be able to refer to him. So as it happens, when you dip your toes into a body of literature that you're not familiar with, the first 
uh, superficially plausible <laughs> paper you read, you're like, oh, so they found yeah, the answer already. Yeah, this, right. is, this is great. And when I read Damien and Necessity, I was like, oh, wow, this is this seems to very much perfectly cohere with how we use names in everyday language. My, uh, you call me Robinson. It's because my parents named me Robinson. That, I mean, so it it just right. seems to work. But this isn't as far as I'm aware, the received view anymore. I think the causal theory of naming has largely fallen out of favor. Same with like Goldman's causal theory of knowledge, which uh, I think there are at least, again, to use the word superficially related maybe. Mm -hmm. But what were the sorts of objections that resulted in the causal theory no longer being as popular? So there, there, there are different things in here. Um, so as I said, Kripke doesn't really give a causal theory of reference. He gives you this theory of reference transfer. Um, and okay, sure, sure. the details of that theory, I mean, you know, he, he himself says when he's spelling it out that if you were to try to really make it into a set of necessary sufficient conditions, it's going to fail. Um, my own view is along the lines of Jerry Fodor's, which is never give necessary and sufficient conditions for anything, because it's definitely wrong, right? That all oh, that really? project is never, never succeeds. Um, but so unsurprisingly, it turns out that there are sort of counterexamples and problems for Kripke's kind of view. Um, where the action really is um, today is in the question how much do I need to know about what makes my word refer to what it does for me to be able to use it to refer to something? And so, so as I mentioned, right? Question now. Yeah. So, so this, so Chalmers, for example, one way to think of this, so there's this famous footnote, well, it's famous to me, in Naming Necessity, where <laughs> Kripke reports Robert Nozick as having observed that if there is a true theory of reference, then in some sense, the description theory is true because you just like imagine the true theory of reference written out. X refers to Y if and only if, you know, and then some condition, right? Then here's the, here's the correct version of the description theory. Aristotle refers to the object and then you just write down the condition, right? The condition that by hypothesis, is the correct condition for reference, right? <clears throat> so, so this this move of just like saying, well, look, you think that that's the right version of the description theory, or sorry, you think this is the right condition for reference. I'm just going to build that into a description. <clears throat> this is a move that I've come to call Nozick's Gambit. Um, and it clearly works, right? I mean, if, if that's the correct theory by hypothesis, then of course this name has to refer to whichever thing it is that satisfies the condition that gives the correct theory. So, so, you, so it's, it's, it's pointless to have an argument in a way over like what the correct condition is because whatever the correct condition is, a description theorist is going to be able to just import it into their favored description. And this is essentially what Chalmers does. David Chalmers. So David Chalmers is the, you know, very well-known and fantastic philosopher uh, who is the leading proponent of this kind of view, sort of nowadays. And so the, the question 
<clears throat> the critical question is the one that I mentioned kind of obliquely in, in describing Kripke's view, is whether... So Chalmers thinks that in a very, in a very, very idealized sense, we all know the conditions that are required for our words to refer to what they do. That the idealized sense is that those conditions are kind of available to us by a priori philosophical reflection. <clears throat> but so-called externalists, of whom Kripke is an example, they reject that claim, or they at least they think that that's not required for us to be able to refer use the name to refer. So Chalmers thinks that in order for me to be able to use the name Aristotle to refer to Aristotle, there has to be some sense in which I do know the condition that's required for the name to refer to him. Whereas Kripke thinks, no, I don't have to in any sense know that condition. I just have to be part of the relevant chain. That's enough. I don't have to know anything about the chain. I just have to be part of it. Whereas Chalmers thinks, again, in this very idealized way, that I have to know about the chain, not just to be part of it. And that dispute is not going to be resolved. I mean, just it's it's built into the structure of the dispute that counterexamples and stuff just have nothing. They're not going to move the dispute forward one way or another because Chalmers just built, by definition, his view is, is the description theory built on the correct theory of reference. So I think that that lesson has been very hard won uh, over the last 20 years or so, that the, the real issue here is not one that is kind of what is the right theory of reference. It's this other question about what relationship has to obtain between a speaker and the correct theory of reference in order for them to use words to refer to things. Whoops, I lost you. I can no longer hear you. Oh, I had there I had accidentally go. I had accidentally <laughs> muted myself. Yeah. Uh, the my you I had this that later. I had this really good pint of ice cream uh, for breakfast, <laughs> and it was a, a peppermint can or it was candy cane, chocolate chip, marshmallow, oh, or something like, like that. Christmas. And yep. yeah, it was leftover from Christmas. It was on my desk and the pins was my cat was licking the the carton so i <laughs> i didn't need that in the background for your for right. your uh, talk but she's now the now, cat is so. having a bath back there yeah yeah oh she she probably got uh she got probably got ice cream, cream on her yeah. ears or something <laughs> that's funny uh but what i was saying is there are still some some wrinkles to this discussion that i think it it we should really get into mm -hmm. uh before we close it and the the first is experimental philosophy. Uh, mm -hmm. So I don't know what, just like with uh, ordinary language, I'm not sure what experimental philosophy mm -hmm. is, but I, I know that it's it's had some influence or role to play in, in the philosophy of language and particularly with regard to uh, reference, maybe sense as well. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is experimental philosophy? Because in, all, in almost all senses, I, I would say philosophy is experimental. Like if I were mm -hmm. just naively going to use the word, I would say, well, David Lewis was an experimental philosopher, mm -hmm. if there ever was one. So, but so what does what does it mean? Yeah. Um, so so in the in the context of um in the, in the present context, so Kripke in in describing, in, in arguing against the description theory, um, he, he uses a number of thought experiments. You asked me about thought experiments at the very end of last time, uh, actually. Um, and 
So after Kripke disposes of this very strong form of the description theory that involves names being abbreviations for descriptions, he discusses a weaker form of the theory, which is not that names abbreviate descriptions, but rather just that for each name, there's a description that gives what that's going to fix what its reference is, right? Um, so it's not that the word Aristotle can be replaced by, you know, some description. It's just that if you want to know what Aristotle refers to, there's a certain description and that's going to answer that question for you. And Kripke gives these these thought experiments uh, that involve, um, you know, speakers who are relatively ignorant who can still use names. So he gives an example. Um, one of the examples he gives involves the name Richard Feynman. Like Feynman is a was a famous physicist. Most of us do not know enough about physics or what Feynman's contributions to physics were to be able to give a kind of descriptive condition that would pick him out, distinguish him from other physicists, you know, who were famous too or something. But Kripke says, look, I can still, even if I'm ignorant of these things, I can still use the name Richard Feynman to refer to Richard Feynman, right? I can say, hey, tell me something about Richard Feynman. And when I do that, I use the name Richard Feynman to refer to Richard Feynman, same as anybody else, you know, who would do that. And so Kripke gives these kind of thought experiments, and then he 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 announces these kind of conclusions about them that, you know, for example, that even very ignorant speakers can use the name Richard Feynman to refer to Richard Feynman. And so, and of course, this is a very common thing in philosophy, right? You, yeah, yeah. you have Gettier's thought experiments and the trolley problem and all these other things. And so what happened was that in the late 1990s, um, various people started to become nervous about the way that these thought experiments were being used. And in particular, the kind of judgments that philosophers were announcing about them. So if you take uh, Gettier's experiment, right, for example, right, so we get these, these, these examples involving knowledge where you get, you know, Gettier sets up these, these situations where it looks like here's this person and they have a, a, a true belief about something and it looks like they're justified in having that belief, but it looks like I don't want to say that they know that the thing in question, right? Um, and so what certain people started to do was say, well, like, who, who, who says the person doesn't know, right? I mean, am I just supposed to take Gettier's word for it? Or is, is, it, is that supposed to be something that we all agree with? And if so, who is we? right? Who is the we who's agreeing about this? And so what people did was that they said, okay, let's go find, let's just go find out, right? Let's go find out what ordinary people think about this, right? So, so empirical just, studies are going to come in here, here. Yeah. So we just, so we just like write down the Gettier case and we start handing it to people at McDonald's, right? Or whatever, mm -hmm. right? And say, hey, what do you think? You know, oh, and okay. what people found, and, and they, people found some quite interesting and surprising things <laughs> that, um, so one of the things that was really striking was that, or at least, you know, not all these things have replicated uh, cleanly, but um, people started to realize that, uh, for example, uh, students in Hong Kong did not give the same answers to the Gettier thing as students at Rutgers did, right? That cultural factors seem to influence uh, or seem to correlate well with 
people's responses to these kinds of cases. Other experiments. Um, uh, do you before you suggest, go on to the other experiments? Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Do you, do you happen to recall what like the difference between the Hong Kong and the Rutgers students were? Or um, I think that the Hong Kong students were more likely to say that the person does know in the Gettier case than the Rutgers okay. students were. Um, I, I think that's right, uh, it, but it could have been the other way around, right? But that's the kind of difference that they were finding. Um, in some experiments, they found differences uh, by gender, um, that women were more likely to give a, a certain kind of response than men did. Um, and those kinds of things, right? So the worry was that the the kinds of claims that people were making about these thought experiments look to be sensitive to factors that you should have thought were irrelevant, right? Like culture or, right? Whether the person knows or not does not look to depend upon culture or gender, right? Um, and so, what what some of the experimental there there are different ways to approach experimental philosophy, but the the kind of um, so-called negative program in experimental philosophy, they people claimed that this these kinds of results um, significantly undermine the methodology that's being used to pursue analytic epistemology or theory of reference or whatever it might be, because. The intuitions, as people like to say about these kinds of cases, look to be highly variable and worse than being variable, de um, dependent upon factors that ought to be irrelevant, right? Um, that was that was the, the kind of explosion of stuff that happens around the turn of the millennium. Um, as it happens, one of the one of the earliest people to work on this was a guy named Jonathan Weinberg, who wrote his senior thesis with me at Harvard. But this was long before Jonathan got into experimental philosophy. Um, I still have a, a clock that he gave me uh, in my office that um, he wrote his thesis on time, uh, on, on dumb it on time. And so he gave me a clock uh, as a thank you present uh, that I still have. Um, um, so kind of weird, you know, personal connection. Um, but that's that's kind of what the experimental philosophy stuff was about. Um, and it gave yeah. birth then to this much larger discussion about about kind of philosophical methodology um, uh, that, that's been ongoing kind of ever since, uh, in which people have argued about what kind of role exactly these kind of thought experiments play, um, whether these kinds of results really do undermine the methodology and stuff like that. Um, and I've, I've written some on that, very little, but a little bit. Um, but Tim Williamson's book, The Philosophy of Philosophy, is kind of a, you know, one place you can look for this kind of thing. It's, it's, it's funny to me that it is quite literally experimental philosophy, and that quite literal reading of the term hadn't occurred to me at all. Yeah. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's philosophy uh, done through conducting experiments. Yeah, which um, sounds like it's it's extraordinarily fun. So yesterday, last night, I actually spoke with Eric Schwitzgabel, and mm -hmm. he's done some experimental philosophy. Mm -hmm. So he uh, did some work on whether uh, eth ethical philosophers are, in fact, more ethical than uh, non-ethical philosophers right. in the general population. And he found that they are not, which was quite surprising to me. But are there any particular ways that this relates to reference some of the experiments yeah so the one one of the early uh things this was in 2001 um a group of people um a lot of this 
grew up originally around Steve Stephen Stitch at Rutgers. Um, Jonathan Weinberg was a Rutgers graduate student, for example, and a group of people in 2001. Um, there were four people who were involved in this. Uh, did one of these studies involving one of the core examples that Kripke uses in naming necessity, the so the, the famous Girdle Schmidt example that he uses, and they found again that um, American undergraduates were more likely to agree with Kripke's judgment about his example than Hong Kong undergraduates were. Um, they were more likely to agree with the, the sort of descriptivist way of, of thinking of the example. So, um, so again, they, what they were trying to argue was that we shouldn't trust our judgments about these kinds of examples. Um, and therefore, this kind of counter, you know, exa thought experiment way of, of conducting the discussion is kind of uh, deeply problematic or needs to be abandoned. Um, um, and they had, there were other, I mean, kinds of consequences they thought it had. Um, um, sure. So well, while, while we're on the topic of experiments, maybe uh, this would be a, a good segue into one of the most uh, important or long lasting thought experiments of all time up there with like Mary in the white room or the Chinese room or something like that, which is uh, Putnam's twin earth thought experiment. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, it's not, I think it's actually quite explicitly not a different possible world, but it's at least mm -hmm. in that, in that spirit. So yeah. maybe you could lay that thought experiment out for us. Yeah. At, and in I should, detail I'll, and we can talk I'll, about it. I'll say in, in passing that this is one that people have also done experiments about okay. um, and, and come to similar conclusions about. Um, mm -hmm. So, so Putnam is interested in, he's particularly interested in reference of, um, of, of so-called natural kind terms. So um, these are uh, predicate type terms like gold or tiger or water or something like that, um, which, so they're, they're called natural kinds because the idea is that what unifies the kind is something that sort of has nothing to do with us, right? So what makes something gold is is sort of non-arbitrary, um, yeah. right? So yeah, unlike, yeah. say, something like the things in this room, right? The things in this room have nothing in common other than that they are in this room, right? Whereas you might think, no, look, but gold's not like that, right? My mm -hmm. my ring and, you know, my wife's ring or whatever, they have something in common other than just that we call them gold, right? They're, right. And I think the, the story to be told, right? Is that these sorts of things carve the world at the joints. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. And 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 then you can, and, and so Putnam is actually coming at this from philosophy of science is actually what he's really interested in. Um, and he's interested in these natural kind terms because of the role that natural kinds play in science. Um, and so, so, so he also, like Kripke, is interested in the question whether what whether the condition for water is the word he uses to refer to water is descriptive, right? That we have some 
descriptive condition in mind that all water satisfies. And that's what makes it water, or whether it's something else that's that's making the word refer to what it refers to. And so he's interested in arguing that it's not a descriptive condition. Um, and so he imagines um, this other world, which he calls Twin Earth, where the stuff that's... So that world is meant to be like an exact duplicate of our world, except that the stuff that's in the rivers and lakes and comes out of the faucets is not H2O as it is in our world. It's this other stuff that he calls XYZ, right? He doesn't say what it is, right? And in some ways, the water example is kind of poorly chosen, um, but maybe we can ignore that. Um, and so Putnam says, look, on so so the idea is that all of the kind of descriptive conditions you might give that that make something water like it it comes you know it's in the rivers and it's clear and it tastes tasteless and blah 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 right all these kind of conditions that you might give these kind of qualitative conditions that you might give apply just as well to the stuff on twin earth as they do to the stuff here and yet so if you ask like the twin earth people what is water they'll they'll give you the same list of conditions that anybody here would give you and yet, Putnam thinks, when we use the word water, we refer to H2O and not to the stuff on Twin Earth, whereas when they use the word water, they refer to their stuff and not to our stuff, right? So again, the conclusion is supposed to be that the, the kind of descriptive conditions that you would specify aren't what really fix the reference, because as far as the descriptive conditions are concerned, they don't distinguish between our stuff and their stuff. Something else does. Uh, and it, so that that's that's the that's the thought experiment and the kind of conclusion that Putnam wants to draw from it. And the crucial the crucial claim in the context of the experiment is that our word water refers to H two O and to H two O only, whereas their word water refers to X Y Z and to X Y Z only, and not to our stuff. Right. That's the crucial claim that's driving the the conclusions. Mm -hmm. And that's the claim that that people subjected to experiment, as it were. Um, and found that you know different people have different answers and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I, I, my own view is that that's irrelevant because it. Uh, I don't yes. think. I mean, but um, it's interesting, but irrelevant. But yeah, I mean, it actually could be. Yeah, I mean, it could be relevant to something, right? I just don't think it's relevant to this issue. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, actually, there's you know, if you, if you there's tremendously interesting work in, um, in, in cognitive science, you know, kind of along these kinds of lines about um, how people think about natural kinds and, and so forth. Um, yeah, really super interesting stuff. Um, and it's got a lot of philosophical relevance, but I think not to this issue. Yeah, I think you, you mentioned Kripke earlier when you were introducing the, the problem or the, the thought experiment. And I think he actually at one point asks a very similar question about whether or not heat can be something other than yeah. some phenomenon connected to molecular motion. And he, uh, contra what you just said about uh, Putnam seems to, I mean, they're not the same case, but he argues that no, it's necessarily this. Yeah. And, and Putnam, yeah. I mean, it's clear that they were thinking along very similar lines. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't think they would not have overlapped at Harvard um, because 
Kripke has gone from Harvard before Putnam got there. Um, and I don't think he'd even left Princeton by the time Kripke was gone from Harvard. So, um, um, and of course, news traveled much more slowly you know, back 60 years ago than it does today. Um, you didn't Putnam have preprints and giving lectures on this kind of stuff in the in the late 60s. Um, and but it's widely, you know, Kripke is kind of more focused on proper names than Putnam is. Uh, and but it's clear that you know there's there's more than a family resemblance between these two sets of ideas. In a way, I think philosophy must have been, or all academia really, must have been a lot more thrilling back then when you could like go visit uh, Hong Kong or something and you find people are just doing something completely different you'd never mm -hmm. heard of. Or you just travel even from Harvard to Yale or Brown and, oh my God, what are these people doing here? Yeah. Whereas now we just have it all at our fingertips. So it mm -hmm. kind of eliminates some of the excitement value. Yeah, I, I think you do to some extent see less of a, um, I mean, you know, 60, 70 years ago, there was there was a thing called Oxford philosophy. And part of the reason there was such a thing is that it was like this very insular place, you know, <laughs> like the, there just, there weren't that many outside influences, you know, I mean, stuff took a long time to get published and, you know, and so on and so forth. And so they spent a lot of time talking to each other. You know, I think people still do, but, you know, but there's a lot more outside influence on what's going on at Oxford nowadays than there was 60 or 70 years ago. And the same goes for Harvard philosophy or, you know, anything else you might want to specify like that. You know, I think departments have in a way less of a personality or maybe better ideology now than they did in the past for this kind of reason. And so, you know, like there are these events like Quine's visit to Oxford and Davidson's visit to Oxford that are like hugely important intellect in, in sort of the history of philosophy of sort of what happened as a result of these visits. And that just doesn't happen today and not in the same way. Yeah. You know, yeah. History of philosophy is going to be quite different uh, 50 years from now. Uh, just the, the the things they'll have to say about philosophers and how they worked. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's mm -hmm. it's um, I, I do think it's had some unfortunate effects. I mean, I I think it's the philosophy happens faster than it used to, and that's in a way a good thing. But I think it's also kind of discouraged people in some ways from focusing on big issues you know i think yeah, a lot of very much philosophy happens very small yeah and i i, I, I do th i mean i you know I, I think it's important to be able to do the fine grain detailed stuff you know and i think it's mm -hmm. important to start there in a way but i i also you know i sometimes read papers where i think well you know kind of taken in the terms of the puzzle that person's working on that's kind of a plausible solution but if you know what the puzzle's really about it's like uninteresting and boring because, and mm -hmm. they just sort of don't really seem to know the larger context in which thing, in mm -hmm. which the, the, this discussion's happening. Um, right. And that, that often bothers me. Yeah. But like as a young person, if you want to contribute to the field, you have to hyper-specialize to be able to keep up with the current literature. If you don't already have this uh, immense base we have one, one very nice thing about the podcast is getting to delve into a lot of areas and 
I mean, not this, this isn't the sort of conversation that on any level equates to writing a dissertation yeah. on sense and reference, yeah. but it's still a, a very nice deep dive uh, into that. Topic. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that always impressed me when I was a graduate student was how much philosophy my teachers knew. And I came to really admire that and, and to realize that part of the reason was that they would read, you know, kind of generalist journals. They would kind of read any paper that was in field review or whatever. Uh, but it was also because they religiously went to departmental colloquia. And that was where they often seemed to kind of encounter other, you know, parts of philosophy that they weren't familiar with. And I think that's that's part of the function that those serve in departments um, is to kind of let everybody see pieces of things that they might not otherwise run into. Do you notice that there's less attendance among faculty to colloquia these days than there was when you were earlier? We have a bit of a problem with that. Yeah. Yeah, Well, I don't think it's unique to Brown if that's what you're referring to. Yeah. And And I, yeah, I wonder why that is. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, I think the pandemic, you know, is a factor um, in a lot of this stuff that, and we need to sort of rethink our commitment to these sorts of things. Um, But it's, uh, I don't know whether, you know, in some ways, maybe it's got something to do with something else you were just mentioning that you can go to YouTube, you know, and look at, you know, you want to see a lecture by Kripke. (laughs) He's not even alive anymore. (laughs) You can go to YouTube and see Kripke lectures. You know, you can, I wonder whether there are just sort of, you know, the kind of thrill of having someone visit your department is not the same as it used to be. Um, And it's, but it's also true as you, as you, as you were kind of saying that, you know, people have become so super specialized that they sort of think, well, this isn't in my area. So what's it got to do with me? Um, And that, that, that's definitely not a good way to think about it. Uh, are there any, uh, returning to the reference, are there any particularly illuminating or just important uh, thought experiments in the space, again, that we haven't touched on yet? Um, most of them are in the ballpark of things we've talked about. I mean, Tyler Burge has some very famous thought experiments about arthritis and so forth, but they're so pretty we, much of the same form okay. of Putnam's. Um, okay. He imagines a world where, so in, in English, on our world, the word arthritis is just, you can look it up in the dictionary, it just means inflammation of the joints. Arthro means joint, itis means inflammation, arthritis is inflammation of the joints, that is what it is by definition. And so he imagines another world where some there's a different definition, right? It means something else. And he imagines a person on our world, Bert. Uh, who doesn't know the definition, but he knows that his grandfather had arthritis. He knows that arthritis is painful. He knows that arthritis affects old people more than young people. He's worried that he has arthritis in his thigh, right? Because he has arthritis, he knows he has arthritis in his hands, and he's now worried that it's spread to his thigh, right? On earth, the doctor tells him, don't worry. Arthritis is by definition, inflammation of the joints. You can't have arthritis in your thigh. Don't worry about it. But on twin earth, the doctor says, hmm, Maybe you do have arthritis in your thigh, right? And so the question is sort of, well, before he encounters the doctor, what does Bert mean by arthritis? Does he mean 
inflammation of the joints, or does he mean this more general thing, right? And the claim is supposed to, Burge's claim is that, no, he means arthritis, of the, he means inflammation of the joints. It's a kind of broadly Kripkean idea that what he means by the word arthritis is kind of cooked up to what other mean, people mean by it. So he means what every, you know, what the experts mean, as it were. Whereas on Twin Earth, Twin Bert means this other thing, right? Because what he means is hooked up to his experts and not to the ones on this on our Earth. So it's very similar structure uh, to Putnam's thought experiments. Um, the difference, the big difference is that Putnam, or sorry, Burge's versions of this don't necessarily involve natural kind terms. Um, whereas Putnam's almost always do. Um, I think all of Putnam's experiments. Some of his his famous Elm Beach experiment has more this structure to it, but it still involves kind terms, um, whereas Burge's don't. There are some other differences too, but but broadly speaking, they're similar structure. Well, then the last main area in which I thought that reference might be of interest is vagueness uh, and I mean referential indeterminacy and mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much attention Frege devoted to this I, I know that I mean he did talk a bit about like the bald man uh, paradox mm -hmm. I know oh, that sweetie. he he had oh can, can we see your cat oh come here Junebug this is one of my five cats this is okay. Junebug whoa She's not very happy. Hi, Sweetie. No, Say hello. Junebug's cute. She's much, much yeah. bigger and fluffier than mine. She is a big cat, actually. All, yeah. of, all of our cats, except for one, are big cats right now. Mm. One of our cats is and, tiny, tiny, tiny yeah. cat. And I, I think that they, he, he and Russell had a, had some exchange of letters about. I don't know what mountain they were talking about, Mont but Blanc. if you're yeah. Mont Blanc, yeah. yeah, like if you're when and when you aren't uh, standing on Mont Blanc, and and Russell introduced real really vagueness, which is with his paper on that topic to mm -hmm. uh, analytic philosophy. But I'm not sure how how these issues or how you see these issues is relating particularly to reference. So Frege, Frege has a little bit to say about refer, about vagueness, um, though it's almost all um, about predicate vagueness. Um, so he he worries about bald and and so forth. I can't remember exactly which examples he worries about, but he doesn't have very much to say about it. Um, and what he says, roughly, if I if I recall, is that all concepts or predicates, to use that word, uh, they they should cleave the world in two. So you either are bald or okay, or you're not. And That's right. if there is a concept such as baldness that doesn't do this because, okay, it's it's because it's, it's vague whether um, one hair, if you're still bald, if you have one hair or two hairs or three hairs or a heap, I mean, this goes back to the Sorites paradox, yeah. obviously. But, but such concepts just aren't concepts at all they're just faults of language perhaps yeah. yeah he thinks they're 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 radically defective um he, he compares them in fact to non-referring names um so he uh yeah so so he's very dismissive of it um he's he's um i mean i i don't think 
It's hard to say, I think. Um, most of the discussion of reference takes place pretty much in, you know, kind of purposeful indifference to the phenomenon of vagueness, um, at least when we're talking about proper names. Um, I think everyone knows that that's an idealization um, that we're making, that words like Mont Blanc, uh, there may be some indeterminacy in what they refer to. Um, and, but I think most people sort of think that, you know, whatever the solution to that problem is, it won't dramatically affect uh, the theory of reference, um, the, the mm -hmm. core theory of reference. Um, uh, that may or may not turn out to be true, um, but I think that's the sort of attitude that most people have. Right. Um, there's also an important distinction, distinction to be drawn between vagueness as something that has like this sort of scalar component like tallness or mm -hmm. redness versus simple ambiguity like whether you're mm -hmm. talking about a bank or a river bank like a, right are you talking about a river bank or or this kind of bank or yeah and yeah that 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 might actually just be a sort of accidental and deficiency of language that we have words that that do refer to multiple things depending on the context or intention I think the main, I think the view in linguistic theory nowadays is that those are actually distinct words. They just happen to be pronounced the same way and spelled the same way. Um, and part of the evidence for this, there are various forms of evidence for this, but the kind of most intuitive is just that they have different etymologies. One comes from French and one comes from, I don't know, whatever language it comes, German, I think. It sounds um, like the, the causal theory coming back to haunt us. Yeah. I mean, I think it's... Um, but vagueness is, I mean, there, in, there, you can find papers where people compare vagueness to ambiguity in various ways, but I think it's pretty settled nowadays that these are two completely separate phenomena um, and that they're, they're not really um, closely related to each other. Okay. And then I'll ask you, are there any other dimensions of reference that you think are worth talking about that we haven't gotten to yet? Um, you know, I, I, I do think myself that the most, the deepest issue here is this one that I mentioned before about, you know, as people would now describe it in terms of internalism and externalism, um, about that. So when I was a graduate student, uh, I took a course a seminar in which we read kind of a lot of the then current literature on reference, Kaplan and stuff like that. Um, and I remember at a certain point during the seminar, um, the, the guy teaching it, who was on, eventually on my dissertation committee, a guy named Jim Higginbotham. Um, Jim said, he sort of stopped the discussion in the class and he said, do you guys really know what this is all about? And we all kind of looked at it and was like about <laughs> reference. And he said, no, what this is really about is the mind-body problem. And I was thought about, I was like, what the hell does Jim, what do you mean by that? And I, I eventually realized that he was right. Um, and the reason he's right is it's not, it's not really about, it's not like, what he meant by that was not like the, the relationship between the mind and the brain. That was not what he meant. What he meant was it's about the extent to which the mind is kind of enmeshed with our environment. 
the, the extent to which our capacity to think the things we can think depends upon our living in the kind of environment that we live in. That's what he meant. This is exactly, I, I think he got this from Burge because this is pretty, very, very close to something that Burge says at the beginning of Individualism and the Mental. Um, and, and, and that, I think, I think when you see it that way, you, you really start to understand what, what's going on in the, in the contemporary discussion of these issues. That it's somebody like, I mean, you can get it with a kind of Cartesian picture, right? That if I, if I imagine myself as you know, in a kind of Cartesian nightmare where there is no external world, my senses are just being stimulated by an evil demon or a computer or you know whatever it might be. Whether that's true or false doesn't affect what I think. The contents of my thoughts are just wholly determined by things that are kind of, you know, roughly speaking, kind of introspectively available to me. That's a very old venerable, you know, philosophical way of thinking about the mind. But what what the kind of Putnam and Burge and all and Kripke and what what that all is moving towards is is a very different picture where we we kind of are thinking of the mind as a feature of organisms who live in environments and that the the, this, the nature of their mind is in part a function of the kind of environment that they live in and that that's true for us too. So that, you know, as I put it, you know, the mind is kind of constitutively enmeshed in, in, in the environment that the organism lives in. And that, you know, so I, I say, I mean, I think figuring that out about 20 years ago or so, I, to me really kind of transform my understanding of these kinds of issues. And I think that's something that if you talk to a lot of experts in the field, they will kind of tell you that, but I think that's not really widely appreciated outside the, the field, the sort of sub-discipline of people who are, who are fussed about these kinds of issues. Um, and that, you know, so I think when you see it that way, you kind of, See, okay, there's like actually this really enormous issue here about the nature of the mind. Um, and, you know, that issue is the one that, that people, that's kind of, that's what people are talking about these days. And that's why I think this stuff is so interesting um, to, to, to focus on and to teach. Um, if it was just a bunch of puzzles about reference, I wouldn't give a crap, to be honest. Um, it's because it's really this other thing that. And I think that's often true in philosophy that you you have to this is a this is a good example of like what I said before when you kind of you can fuss with the puzzles and all that stuff, but it's when you really understand what the broader significance of these issues is that you start to make progress, I think. Um and I think it's it's essential to be able to do that. Uh and I'm I'm not sure we teach that. I I, I have this worry that that's getting kind of lost somehow in contemporary philosophy but i don't know i could be wrong about that well we've made it uh, pretty far i've got two two last questions to okay uh tie this up and then this might be the first podcast i've done so far in which i really got to ask every question that i wanted uh, to ask which yeah. is a uh, very right. pretty exciting so yeah. definitely different from the ones we've done before yeah <laughs> I, I know. So I know that 
and it's funny that's where we're heading actually mm -hmm. so i know that that speech acts are important in the philosophy of mm -hmm. sex and porn because we've talked about ray langton and drawing yep. on and her work drawing on austin and i'm wondering if sense and reference play any interesting role there I guess in the in the philosophy of sex, I mean, one thing that very, maybe it's a little bit too uh, charitable to say, but referring to it's unclear who you're referring to with the class of men or the mm -hmm. class of women. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and it's an interesting though, philosophical question, distinguishing or natural kinds, but that's more philosophy of science yeah. stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking that there are issues about kind of. Um, I mean, this is kind of obliquely related to some stuff we talked about last time, but I think this kind of Foucauldian picture that I just mentioned about the 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 way in which certain kinds of social categories like homosexual or, for that matter, sex or orgasm or man or woman, um, you know, the, the sort of awareness of the way in which those are shaped by social factors uh is I don't know if kind of whether you're a descriptivist or not in the end is going to influence your view about that, but certainly it's a kind of feature of the way people talk about these things that looks, I think, in a way more kind of Burgian in particular, um, to see concepts as kind of part of the social fabric um, in a certain way um, that might suggest a kind of connection uh, between these things. I see. Okay, Certainly, then... if you look at like Hosslanger, for example, uh, she spends quite a lot of time actually talking about Putnam and Burge and those kinds of things in, in her discussions of social categories. Okay, and then the last question I have uh, is really coming back full circle and it might not actually be the best way to end the podcast. Probably your uh, thoughts on the mind-body problem problem uh, would have been the best way to end it, but I don't. I don't care. I want to get every right. question I had out. <laughs> and you raised earlier, and so that we might get back to uh, why Frege wrote on sense and reference, and mm -hmm. how that related to his work on the Begriffshrift. Yeah. yeah. So, so this is a. I think what I'm about to describe is something that's pretty widely appreciated now. Um, I'll mention a couple of people as antecedents of this, but this is something I figured out for myself when I was trying to understand exactly what the puzzle is that Frege is concerned with nonsense and reference. So here's one way to think of it. So suppose I believe that, um, let's do the Mark Twain example. Um, suppose I believe that Mark Twain was a great author, and suppose that I believe that Samuel Clemens was born in Missouri or something. I don't know. I can't so like that, right? So if I have those two beliefs, right, that Mark Twain was a great author and that Sam Clemens lived in Missouri, then I should not infer from those two beliefs that there is a great author who lived in Missouri, right? at least not without an identity premise, right? To underwrite the inference, right? But if I believe 
that Mark Twain was an author, a great author, and I believe that Mark Twain lived in Missouri, then I can infer that there was a great author who lived in Missouri, right? So the difference between the names Mark Twain and Sam Clemens affects what inferences it is reasonable for me to draw, right? And that means that that difference has to do with logic, right? And that's why Frank yeah. was interested in it, right? Because he was, his question in effect was something like, how do the premises have to be related to each other in order for that inference to be acceptable, right? That's the question that he wanted to know. Now we know how to symbolize it in logic, right? In logic, what you do is you choose one name, like one letter in the, in the same clay, in the Mark Twain, Mark Twain case, you put M both times. And in the Sam Clemens, Mark Twain case, you put S and you put M, right? So we know how to symbolize it. But the question then becomes, well, what is the symbolism reflecting? Right? What is it that it's capturing? And that's that that's what Frege is really interested in, right? Is this this question about the nature of inference is what he cares about. And his answer is you put the same letter when you have the same sense both times. And you put different letters if there are different senses, right? So what the letters are reflecting is the senses of the two expressions. Okay. All right. All right. Wow. We did on sense and reference. Okay. Well, again, uh, Ricky, all these episodes have been really great. I'm going to give you a break, though, before we get into uh, Frego's Frego's philosophy. Thanks. That's fun. All right. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.